Well, I guess that's all I got for that particular section. Did you have anything else? <laughs> that, that doesn't feel awkward at all, Justin, because it's uh, two days later when we're recording this part. But uh, um, yeah, guys, if you haven't figured out by now, this is going to be a fucking monster of an episode. So Fuck yeah, dude. Like, let's set some <laughs> records. That's what I'm saying. Dude, it's for sure going to be a record for us. Uh, what you, you told you text me, you said we recorded for three hours, 17 minutes. I don't know what you'll edit that down to, but that got us through uh, section eight, eight which worked section. out to be yeah eight of 20. So not, not halfway on the sections, but got us to page 13 of 26 of what we typed up. So we were halfway on that front. So yeah, I think the, the last end here should be fairly smooth sailing i can only really recall one section at the end or in these next sections these upcoming sections that uh is really kind of gonna probably take a lot of our time but uh you know again it was like this chapter had a lot of perspective and maybe two more extensive sections you and i were talking uh you know prior to hitting the record button here again but i I still think this was the right way to go because I think we would have just got burnt out trying to push through doing this all in one. I just, it, it didn't seem very feasible. Well, um, right. We, but I mean, you've also been podcasting for two hours now at this point. So, yeah, uh, well, I think it was a little over an hour, um, but yeah, different subjects, uh, you know, talking, talking to Christopher was, it was a lot of fun. So I, again, thank you for recording that and, um, handling that side of things. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, what do you say? Should we get into section nine here? Section nine will transition back to some Malazan content here. The Maibi stepped out of the tent exhausted. Silver Fox had fallen asleep in a chair at one point when Krupp was rambling on about the Trigali Trade Guild rules of conduct. She had let Silver Fox sleep as she had yearned for some time away from her child. While her little attempt meant nothing as she could not escape the demands of Silver Fox, it was only symbolic. She was so sore that nothing provided relief except for a deep sleep. Paran exited the tent and wanted to ask the Maibi one question. Then he would leave her to herself. He wanted to know where someone would hide a table. She told him it would be found in the tent of the shrouds. She would take him there. Paran said directions would be good enough, but the Maibi said walking eased her aches. As she walked, the Maibi said she had awoken Tattersail within, or said he, rather, had awoken Tattersail within her daughter, and that she had a dominant personality. The Maibi was happy about this and asked what Tattersail was like. Paran said she was generous to a fault, highly respected, and a well-liked cadre mage. The Maibi thought he withheld information and that detachment was a flaw, not a virtue. Paran continued saying, from the Rivi point of view, it may have appeared that the Malazan war machine was an unstoppable monster, taking city after city, but in truth it was never like that. They were poorly supplied and often outnumbered in places they were not familiar with. In fact, Dujek and his host were getting their asses kicked, pal, when Brood showed up with the Tyst Andy and the Crimson Guard. It stopped the army in their tracks. The mages were often the only thing keeping them from complete annihilation. The Maibi said he had the Moranth, though. Paran said they were not as reliable as you would think, but their alchemical ammunition had changed war forever. Also, their quarrels were a game changer, and the host had become too reliant on both. 
The Mibe said the tent was ahead and she had heard rumors that things were not all well within the Moranth. Paran had said there had been a split among them at the hands of several quick defeats by their elite forces, the Golds. And at the moment, they only had the Black Moranth at their side. The Blue, however, continued on their sea lanes to seven cities. Crone suddenly appeared and surprised them both. She stumbled as if drunk. Looking up at Paran, she said, You! Then took off into the air. The Mibe said Crone had never appeared to be afraid of him before. People began to exit the tent. Paran told them they had gone far enough. The woman stopped and offered a wrong-handed salute as she was carrying a lantern in the other. She said the purloined table was inside. Paran said they had done, had done good work, but military decorum said they needed to return it and asked Picker, asked Picker if she agreed, which she did. Paran said that he figured her... Hedge, Spindle, and Blend could manage. They didn't understand, so Paran clarified that he meant for them to carry the table back. Picker said it would be best if they had more help. Paran said no. They were leaving in the morning. They were leaving in the morning and wanted the company well-rested, so best not to disturb the, the rest who were asleep. And besides, it should only take them an hour or so, and they'd even have time to ready their kits. Best to get to it and not delay. Picker told the, grew, the crew to hop to it and asked if Spindle had a problem since he had a look on his face. Spindle whispered a single word. Idiot! He didn't know how he could have missed it. It's him. And it was plain as day. Picker told him to snap out of it as she cuffed him in the face. Spindle told her not to hit, hit him again or she'd regret it for the rest of her life. Picker said if she hit him again, he wouldn't be getting up. So to cut the shit... And any more threats would be his last. Staring at Paran, saying that everything would change. It can't happen yet. He needed to think, and he needed quick, Ben. Picker yelled at Spindle again and said to pick up the table. The Mibe asked what all, the, all, what all this was about. Paran didn't know. She said the table needed more than four sets of hands. Paran agreed. When the Mibe asked if he would get them more help, he said no. They stole the damn thing in the first place. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I, I couldn't switch back to mute myself when I had to cough there a couple times. You know, you can just hold the space bar, right? Oh, he did not know that. I'm going to try that right now. Mm, that's not working. Oh, dumb. Okay. Maybe because I'm typing, or I've got my cursor in there. I don't know. Maybe. So, let's see. I didn't have a, I had a couple points for this section. Not a ton. Where, you know, we find out. The Mibe says that Tattersail appears to have the dominant personality, and this makes the Mibe happy. I assume it makes her happy because then she doesn't have to tell Brood that, you know, Night Chill's becoming dominant and they're going to have to kill her or whatever. I don't know if you felt the same. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, th I think you're dead on. I th to bring it a, a little deeper, though, uh, I can only imagine what the Mibe is going through and how much anxiety she feels about which sorcerer, which, you know, mage is going to come to the fore, as they say. So I feel like this is giving her a little bit of that reassurance and it makes her happy. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess as happy as she can be considering the circumstances. Well, right. You know, that yeah. she's slowly being sucked of her life <laughs> yeah what i thought was cool was just this the you know the interaction between paran and the Mibe. um i just it, it really kind of feels like they're really fleshing each other out i wouldn't really say like an awkward interaction but it kind of had that like tone to it 
You know, I don't think that they really have had a moment where they've just gotten to interact with each other. So for, you know, Paran to kind of come out and be like, Hey, where's this fucking tent with the table that my fucking bridge burners stole? And she's just like, well, it's over there. I'd be happy to walk you, you know, just that generosity that is the Mibi, which makes her whole situation so much worse because it's not like she's an asshole or anything. She's actually a pretty, no, she's not at all, but yeah, it just, it felt, it felt very introductory. You know, like not everything's on the on the table yet, but at the same time, they're having this interaction. It really could have just been, hey, I just need directions. And then that could have been it. But no, you know, the Mibi took it upon herself to say like, hey, let's kill two birds, one stone and kind of initiate. You know what I mean? So that was that was really cool to see. Yeah, I agree. I don't think I would really add anything to that. Obviously, you had uh, more to add to it than I did, so that's fine. Oh, no, I'm just, like I said, I'm typing as I'm going. Uh, as you're reading the things that I just recall in that section, because it's a lot easier to do it this way than it is to before we record. Oh, that's fine. I I, I always like hearing your thoughts. I, I don't get tired of that. Oh, that's good. Uh, the other thing that I thought was again kind of interesting and it ties upon you know my previous thought but you know paran again could have just easily just walked in silence but he takes the opportunity to kind of explain to the maybe the malazan's perspective of their ward with war with caladan brute you know he reveals some things that are kind of faults, right so I feel like he's established some trust nonetheless. I don't know why you would just divulge that information for no reason, especially if at one point in time, you know, not too long ago, they were enemies. So I feel for him to kind of be able to break that barrier, trust her enough to say these things. It was a good thing. Actually getting into my actual point, you know, when he talks about the Moranth and the Alchemil the alchemical ammunition and how it changed war forever. It kind of reminded me of what talk was saying to lady envy about a while when they were talking about his disgust with sorcery. So it's just, it's interesting how these concepts throughout the series come up that yeah, sorcery exists, but on the same time we can, we can accomplish similar things without it. I just I think that's interesting that that seems to keep coming up and you know while that's true it kind of makes me think eh, I suppose we could probably talk about this in the later section so just remind <laughs> me when we get to a, a section that I eventually will read I will do my best all right but yeah I mean those are the only two things that I essentially picked out in the section so right um the word purloined, if I'm pronouncing that right, I've never heard that word before, but it means stolen. And even like from context, I still couldn't figure out what that word meant without looking it up. But I, I think like- about our conversation with Mr. Erickson and how he always wants, you know, the right word. He's always searching for that right word. And, and this must be an example of that. I think so. I definitely think so. I like the word. I'm probably going to try to use it more. Like transmogrified? Right. Yes. Yes. That one was cool too. You transmogrified the purloined body? Ooh. <laughs> Spooky for Halloween. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> Even though this is a good released way after Halloween. But you know what? We're four days away from it. Five days. Yeah, we're not far. You know, Peran asked, you know, talking about military decorum and how they needed to return the table. And then he asks Picker if she agrees. And, like, of course she's going to say, oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, you can't disagree with your captain. But obviously, like, I don't think she really did, like... She don't want to lug this 200-pound table around, especially with three other people. You need, like, ten people to drag that thing around. I mean, they should have thought of the consequences when they really wanted to play this game. Is it really worth it in the end? I mean, maybe for them. I guess without it, they would have never discovered uh, the underside of the table. But... All right. I mean, they learned a lot out of the deal, for sure. But I saw, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I thought it was their table to start with. Correct. And then... Somebody in Brood's crew stole it. The Mott Irregulars. Okay. They, so they, they stole back their own table. So why do they got to give it back if it was stolen from them originally? Finders keepers, I guess. Uh, the Mott Irregulars found it while they were doing battle and purloined it. So <laughs> <laughs> Nice. That didn't take you long. No, not at all. I did it. I did it, y'all. But <laughs> Nice. I think they're just, I think when it comes to the table, and I don't know if it's in a section coming up or, or one that we've already talked about, but I know that there was a part where Dujic was saying that the loss of the table, thankfully, was merely just an inconvenience for Brood. Oh, that was in a previous section. Yeah. Or that was in one of mine. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's just Dujic is being respectful. And even though the table is technically theirs, he's just letting them have it. Paran? Dujek. Dujek and Whiskey Jack know about the table being gone. Yeah, but Paran told them that they had to bring it back. Right, because right? Paran was being told by Whiskey Jack to bring it back. I guess I don't remember that part. I thought Paran was just the one who told them to bring it back. In no. any case, I don't understand why. I mean, it was theirs originally, got stolen, they stole it back. Why isn't it theirs now again? I think I it know. comes back to military decorum. Right back to your your point here. They're just being respectful, you know? Like, they're just... Maybe they're walking on eggshells, you could probably call it that. But I think they're just trying to keep the peace. Well, I yeah, I guess that makes sense now that they're a combined army. If if they weren't, then I suppose I would think maybe then they'd keep it if they were still separated. Right. Exactly. So, that's a good point. I did not think of that. I appreciate that, Justin. You always have these thoughts... Of things to kind of keep me grounded when I'm like, oh my God, this seems dumb. Like, I wouldn't do that. And you're like, well, look at it from this point of view. Like, oh, I mean, we've been talking know, for five right. minutes about a table. So, uh. <laughs> how many people can do that? Yeah, right. I mean, nobody else can make a five hour episode out of a chapter in a book. <laughs> right. Um, Picker cuffed a guy in the face. Um, I assume that's like a punch or a slap or something, but just again, wording that that one obviously I knew she hit him to some capacity, but I don't know. Like, is it a open hand slap? Did she just give him a knuckle sandwich? You know, I don't really know, but just one of those things that caught my attention. According to the Google A's here, it is to hit someone with your hand in a light, joking way. Oh, okay. So it's nothing. It's not like she gave him a black eye then or anything. Right, yeah. So, which makes sense because Spindle's like, don't hit me again or you'd regret it for the rest of your life. I think at that point they're just bantering with each other, you know. 
Oh, well, that's why I thought she hit him a little harder. Like he was kind of actually like pissed about it. Like, bitch, don't hit me again or I'm going to fucking murder your ass. And I think that's the importance of words, right? Like if that's the intended outcome that Erickson wanted to convey, I think that instead of cuff, he would have said punched or slapped or beat or he would have used a different word. That's fair. So that was that was all I had here. So um, we could probably move on here. All right. If you're ready. I'm ready. All right. Let's go for it. An hour remained before sunrise, leaving Picker and her hapless crew to their task. Departing from the Mybe's presence, Paran made his way to the bridge burner encampment. He was surprised to find Whiskey Jack near the center hearth. He was busy saddling a horse. Paran asks his commander if the meeting has ended. Whiskey Jack explains that it's still going on, and that's par- partially to do with Krupp. Paran wonders if it's because of his pitch of the Trade Guild. Whiskey Jack said that on the contrary, the Trade Guild has been fully endorsed, and now they have overland supply lines. Paran asks him why the meeting was still taking place then. Whiskey Jack elaborates that there will be envoys attached to their army. Those envoys are Krupp and Call. Whiskey Jack finished saddling his horse and turned to tell Paran something, but instead chose to tell Paran that he and the bridge burners would be taken by the Black Moranth to the foot of the Bargast Range. The captain's eyes widened and said that this was quite a journey, but what were his orders for when he got there? The commander explained that Trotz would detach from his command and initiate contact with the white-faced Bargast by whatever means are necessary. Miranda wonders if after Trotz succeeds with the white-faced Bargast, should he move south? Whiskey Jack tells him that this is correct and he'll be the relief of Capistan. He asked Paran if he had any questions. Paran simply just shook his head. The horse suddenly shied under the commander and pitched to one side. Wind struck the camp and voices shouted in alarm. Paran started, stared upward as a vast black shape swept towards the Tistiandi camp. A faint aura outlined the enormous dragon. Paran's stomach flared with pain, intense but very brief. Whiskey Jack cursed and asked what the hell was that? Paran thought to himself that the commander couldn't see because he doesn't have this bestial blood pumping through him. Paran tells Whiskey Jack that Anomander Rake has arrived at the Tistiandi camp. Paran strode forward, as now was a good of time as any, to awaken his squad. He tells Ancy, after she wakes up, to get the cooks ready. Whiskey Jack got Paran's attention and explained that he was going back to Brood's tent and asked if the captain would like Silver Fox to be sent over so Paran could say goodbye. Paran politely declined and thought to himself that distance was no longer a barrier, as now they share a private link. Paran said his goodbyes to the commander. So first thing that I had here, you know, again, really kind of short-ish, shorter section. When they're talking about what Paran is to do after Trotz makes or succeeds with the white-faced Bargast, Um, Part of me thinks that this won't happen. I don't have any evidence for it, obviously, but I think Paran is going to end up caught in something else. I don't necessarily think that he'll end up relieving Capistan. Interesting. So, obviously, you don't have any evidence, but do you have any thoughts as to what maybe that would be? Uh, Something to do with, you know, him accepting the fact that, you know, he's got a bigger role than he wants to admit. Maybe, um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Confrontation with Rake in some way, shape, or form. Maybe Rake figures it out and like tracks him down. I mean, I don't know. So I agree with you a little bit. I th- I think there's going to be some con some sort of confrontation with Rake. And it just came to me as you were reading your section here, but uh, there was a lot, you know, where Pran he gets uh, where is it? his stomach flared with pain uh, at the dragon. I think that. I wonder if that's because of like the hound's blood that he's got and then Rake showing up with the sword. Do you think it can like sense it? And they're like, oh shit, not this again. You know, something like that. I mean, yes and no. Uh, However, I don't think that it's because of the hound's blood. I think it's because he escaped the sword. I can get on board with that too. Yeah. I mean, in either case, it boils down to the sword in one capacity or another. Right. Which kind of brings me back to what I said earlier. And that all of these players are all of, I guess, the central theme to me with Paran, Silver Fox, Nightchill, K. Rule, Animander Rake, even even potentially Kalor by proximity, is it all surrounds around the House of Dark. Paran is now, because of his experience and escape from the sword, is essentially associated with High House Dark in some way, shape, or form is my guess. You don't think him being like the master of the deck puts him above that? I mean, maybe. That's an interesting thought. I don't know if it necessarily puts it above above Rake or the Sword or High House Dark. I think that makes him an equal player. Because I feel like, I mean, if you're the master of something, like, you're top dog. And, and obviously, like, Perant hasn't accepted that role yet because he's, right. he's told everybody he doesn't want it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, you know, the relief at Capistan. I think that's. I think. I think he's going to get there because I think that's going to be an all hands on deck situation. The only one I think that probably won't get there is Quick Ben because he's going to be dealing with Burn. Probably. I guess is what I think. The way that I like to think about Paran is kind of like a street music, uh, street magician that manipulates the cards to show what we want them to see. You know, the deck of dragons is essentially just a, a deck of cards, right? Uh, there's more value in a jack than there would be, you know, a 10 or an 8 or whatever. So I just imagine that when he does accept his role, he's going to be able to manipulate the deck into his benefit, which will then kind of make everybody follow suit the way that he wants the game to be played. I guess we'll have to see. Mm-hmm. So... The other thing that I picked out was clearly Whiskey Jack can't see Rake enter the camp in his dragon form, but Paran can. I'm just wondering, like, Wait, what? Whiskey Jack couldn't. Whiskey Jack didn't see the dragon. No, I totally because, missed that. Yeah, Paran thought to himself that the commander couldn't see because he doesn't have this bestial blood pumping through Whiskey Jack. So Paran, so he just saw a dude flying around in the sky. Yeah, or he didn't even see that. I don't think Whiskey Jack saw that. But I think what this is telling us is that Paran has a heightened sense of sight. Interesting. Yeah, I totally missed that. So wondering, is this because of like what Paran did in the sword? Does that now link Rake with the hounds? Or has that always existed in some way, shape, or form? I don't know. I just think it's interesting. There's definitely some type of link between the hounds and if you know if i'm speculating correctly and i know i've said this before but if paran while he was in dragnipur 
release the hounds or set them free in some way, shape or form. My only guess is that that is the hold where high, or high house dark lives. That is like the Warren to their house or potentially the Azath that it's an Azath that is living inside of the sword. And if we know anything about Azaths, right. is like you enter one, you can essentially get to anywhere you would like to go. Right. Based on what we find out in dead house gates. So interesting. The hounds could really be anywhere at this point. Yeah. I'm not sure where the, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm, I wonder if they'll pop up here at some point before too long. I didn't even think we were going to get them in Deadhouse Gates, but we totally did. So True. Yeah, we did. The other thing that I thought was really interesting is what Paran says at the end, which he doesn't want Silver Fox to say goodbye because he has the ability to do it right inside his mind. It seems that they have a private link, which kind of makes... I feel like this is a little bit of foreshadowing to something we'll read later on. I'm not sure if I know what you're talking about off the top of my head, but maybe I'll pick it up later. But just like right now, my thoughts, it seems kind of like a punk move. Sure, you can say goodbye like in your mind, but I don't feel like that's worth as much as saying it face to face. Oh, for sure. It's like dumping someone over text message. Yeah. It doesn't have face to face. Right. Exactly. For sure. But I mean, it really hasn't that link. This link really hasn't been uh, said or explained in a ton of detail. It's literally just this as they have, there's no longer a barrier. They share a private link. Right. But that's really all I had to say about that particular section. Um, it's interesting. The wave of emotions that all of these characters are going through at different points in time, you know, uh, the uncertainty, the worry, the anxiety, and it just, it seems to fluctuate. Sometimes it's really good. And then Rake shows up and then all of a sudden, like, I can only imagine Pran's going like, oh, fuck, that hurt. What the hell is going on with me? You know, he immediately brought back to his dilemma. Yeah, I agree. Would you like to move on? Anything else you have to say there, sir? That's all I got. All right. Oh, yeah, we're kind of cruising here off the bat. All right. The Tyst Andy had gathered in a circle waiting for their master. A black dragon had emerged from the darkness to land within them. Only a moment after landing, he had turned back into himself. The Maibi watched as Korlat met her master. The Maibi had seen Animander Rake one other time, south of the Black Dog Forest. It was also from a distance as he talked to Brood. She remembered the dominating presence of Moonspawn filling the sky. A slight turn of his head was the only acknowledgement he gave Korlat. To the right appeared Brood, Kalar, Dujek, and the others. Tension filled the air, the same tension the Maibi remembered at their meeting years before. Rake was an ascendant, unlike Brood, so they were like opposite ends of the spectrum of power. Rake was an imposing figure no one could ignore or escape. She thought about his sword, Dragnipur, and how he was the only one to put fear into Kalar's eyes. Except for her daughter, Silverfox. He may fear an alliance between Rake and Silverfox more than anything. Kaller spoke with his booming voice to Rake, saying, He seeks his clearest vision and the justice of his sword, and to let no one influence his opinion, including Korlat. Rake spoke back, saying, What else kept his sword from his black heart other than sentiment? Kaller said he spoke of the child. Surely he could sense her power. Power? Rake said. It was abundant here. He was right to be afraid. Looking at the Maibi, he said, forces of nature are indifferent to justice. 
asking if she agreed. She struggled to reply, but said she did agree. Greg said it fell to all sentient beings, no matter how unworthy, to impose a moral divide. This seemed to catch the Maibi by surprise. She asked if that was truly the case. Keller said she had birthed the abomination. Her vision is clouded, but that didn't mean she was innocent of wrongdoing. Rake told Keller if he approached any further, it was at his own risk. Keller stopped. Rake said it looked like his appearance was anticipated so that he could adjudicate what was a complex situation. Brood said looks could be deceiving and that Rake decided what he wanted, but he would not allow Dragnipper to be unsheathed in his camp. The Maibi thought to herself that this could go wrong in a hurry. She looked at the Malazans. Dujek stood expressionless, but his posture gave him away. Artanthos was just behind him and to the right. His rain cloak pulled tight, hiding his hands, his eyes glittering. The Maibi thought she saw power swirling around, but second-guessed herself as she now saw nothing. Rake faced Brood, saying he could see lines were being drawn. He asked Corlat where she stood. She said she sided with Brood. Rake then looked at Kalor and said it appeared he was alone. His reply was that it was ever thus. Rake told Kalor he was not unfamiliar with that position. The sound of horse hoofs pounding the earth approached. The ticed Andy parted to let Whiskey Jack in on his horse. Whiskey Jack dismounted and strode over to Silver Fox and stopped in front of her, his sword removed from its scabbard. Brood stepped to Whiskey Jack's side, saying, with what he might face, it would be best if he... Whiskey Jack interrupted and said he stands here. Magic flowed out from Rake, passing through Whiskey Jack and enveloping Silver Fox. The Maibi called out, but Corlat claimed, calmed her, saying he seeks only to understand her. The sorcery around Silver Fox was flung away. The Maibi could see she was furious. Thinking to herself, the Maibi thought that she could see Tattersail and Nightchill and a third that was slow to anger. It is Bellardin. She thought they were moments away from tearing everything apart. Rake said he had never had his hand slapped in such a fashion before and wondered what it was she didn't want him to find and reached for Dragnabur. With a nasty curse, Brew drew his massive hammer. Caller asked Rake if he wanted him on his left or right. Suddenly, a massive odd-shaped thing was flying through the tent's entrance. It was the table that the Maibi had last seen in the shroud tent. Krupp dangled from one leg trying to eat sweet cakes as he said he hates flying. Man, such a, a dynamic section. Again, so wrought with uncertainty, right? Like, my first... Oh, well, you, you had the first comment, so I'll let you go. <laughs> You're all right. Uh, yeah, you just didn't really know what was going to happen. But, but, yeah, my first thought, Rake being an ascendant, unlike Brood. Um, and I had to think about this, and and I'm not sure I still understand, because they're both soul-taken, but they're both just not ascendants. I thought, I don't know why, but I thought Brood was an ascendant as well, but apparently not. I think that he may be like close to ascendancy, but maybe just not there yet. Obviously, he's quite powerful. Right. Right. Yeah. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's about all I had there was just, it, it made me think for, I guess I thought he was, that's all. I mean, I guess I was always under the impression that he was as well, but I guess I can't say with any type of certainty now. And it's definitely made me curious. So I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye out for all that stuff. Yeah, we'll have to watch out for it for sure. Yeah. The one thing 
that again, just Calor being an absolute asshole. He is trying so hard <laughs> to get the first word in on his opinions of Silver Fox to Rake. Like, obviously, he hasn't been a part of any of the conversations that have happened before with the uncertainty surrounding Silver Fox. And so he wants to make his opinion known before anybody else so he can get the first word in and hopefully convince rake right away to just kill her or do something with her you know right and we've been told before that calor is very convincing and here he is saying you know don't let anybody else convince you well here he is trying to convince rake right exactly what did you think of Rake's response to it? Uh, just like where he's like, well, I haven't fucking stabbed you to death. <laughs> yeah. Right. Sounds like a Rake answer. <laughs> it's one of those things where I feel like he, Rake is essentially saying like, no, I'm going to hear everybody's opinion. But like at the same time, when he says that I know what it's like to stand alone is kind of more or less agreeing with Calor's position. Well, I mean, what if it's more about being on Silver Fox's position? I mean, because Caller's trying to get everybody against her. I think so. I, effectively, she's alone, right? Standing alone, right? Yeah. So it very well could be he's taking in her perspective as well. I don't really get. I get more kind of a, a neutrality vibe from Rake in this particular section. I think that yes, he can be told a bunch of stuff, but I think that he's wise enough to understand. That he's going to get everyone's perspective first before he really makes a decision. I, I think that's true. You know, but then, you know, he t Brood tells Rake, like, you're not fucking drawing your sword, buddy. Like, I'm going to smash your chest in with my big fucking hammer if you take it out. Like, I like that Brood. Not that I would mess with Rake by any means, but Brood much seems like the guy you don't fuck around and find out with. Right. Like, I think he's, he, to me, he appears like he takes a lot less shit than Rake. And I don't even think Rake takes a lot of shit, but Brood is definitely not the guy to be on the wrong side of the line with. Yeah, exactly. It almost kind of makes me wonder if, like, they've actually battled each other before. Do you get that feeling? Do you think that... Like, where they've been, like, one-on-one -on -one with each other? And, like, yeah. Obviously, they're both still alive, so they're just, like draw and they just like one of them withdrew or something right maybe Ooh, that'd be interesting. i wonder i wonder if we uh would see anything like that in like an esomot novel or something maybe it's very possible i guess we'll just one of those read and find out moments but i still think it's interesting and obviously i mean they have a storied history with each other right and it explains a lot about gardens of the moon too right like you know it, it's clear that brood had sent some of the Crimson Guard into Jerusalem to help out in adversary of Rake. You know what I mean? And, you know, it was kind of explained that there's like some tension there. I feel like in that moment when I was reading that, I felt kind of confused, but I feel like this clarifies a lot in, you know, going back and recalling those events and just kind of the, just the overall state of confusion I had with, with their relationship when I was reading the first book. But yeah, there's definitely some things where, you know, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend type of thing going on between Brood and Rake. Like it's just a kind of born of convenience type thing. Right. I can see that. Like a power couple. 
they know that they are too good together than they would be by themselves. So they just kind of like suck it up and tolerate each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, I think either one of them would turn on the other, like pretty quick, given the opportunity, the right opportunity. I mean, but if they're that formidable of an adversary, like when do you make that move? I don't know. You'd have to be pretty confident, like that you're not going to blow it and that the odds are in your favor. Exactly. I mean, he does have the ability to wake up burn. What's to say, what's to stop him from using that power? I mean, clearly it has something to do with burn as we'll kind of read on in a, in a later section here, but yeah, but wouldn't that just pun intended here? Wouldn't that just burn him also? Not necessarily. I mean, yeah, 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 it would. So <laughs> it's maybe just one of those situations or a relationship where it's a stalemate, you know? That was so punny. You're funny. That was dumb. You can I just know, say it. it was a good dad joke. Um, <laughs> I am on, a dad. Moving on, though. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing, again, uh, the Maibi observes Artanthos, and he's got his rain cloak pulled tight, hiding his hands, and his eyes are glittering. So... Again, I feel like in this book, hands are a big thing, you know, with, uh, you know, Absalar's father, you know, Dujek not having an arm, you know, just things around that. So I'm wondering what it is, why he's hiding his hands. And I'm wondering if this is alluding to anyone or something. It is because he's wearing a public masturbator trench coat. There we go. That must be it. <laughs> That must be it. Don't. <laughs> he definitely had the fat yeah. beers. I could tell. I mean, he clearly, he just came and that's why his eyes are glittering. He's got that like post nut clarity. <laughs> that was a very awkward moment to walk into. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's better than post. Yes. <laughs> Nothing is better than post nut clarity. <laughs> There's more up there. Oh. More clarity? Yeah, exactly. More clarity. <laughs> but. Oh, I'm glad that I can't see the camera, so I'm glad that worked out well. <laughs> yeah, it was good timing. Good timing for sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, kind of, again, just I feel like this section is taking place from the Mybe's perspective. And again, just the influx of differencing emotions, you know, like, oh, my God. Keller's going to try, Corlat, do something. And then, you know, just this whole conversation unfolds. And she's just kind of got to wait and see how Rake views her daughter, you know? And then she gets worried that, you know, essentially Rake is trying to understand Silver Fox with a little wave of magic here. And, you know, it sounds like Silver Fox only let him get so far before she, like, sorcery slapped his sorcery. Yeah, it's, I mean, I felt like Silver Fox is like, no, you're not going to fucking investigate me. Like, get your ass out of here. Yep. Like, she didn't want any of that. So, I mean, to stand up to a guy like Rake, I think, is ballsy. a pretty big deal. Yeah, ballsy, exactly. Like, I mean, she's like the new kid on the block, basically. And you got Rake, who's thus far from what we've seen, like he's what, probably like a top five most powerful character in the world that we've seen. I would say that. Yeah. I would say that's probably accurate. I don't necessarily know that he's number one. I don't know who I would place at number one, but he's got to be top five. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I think, though, that Rake, at the end of the section, more or less kind of came to his senses or potentially took a side when Whiskey Jack and Brood kind of like, no, I'm not going to let you kill her, et cetera, et cetera. You know, like they stood their ground against him as well. So I think that he's seeing the number of people, constituents, that are advocating for Silver Fox, whereas Caller is the only one who's not. Right. I'll, uh, I'll let you take your last comment here. Yeah, fucking Krupp just dangling from a floating table, stuff in his face, saying, you know, he hates flying. He just, the guy just knows how to make an entrance, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right at the end of a section, here he is. Like, I can just picture it so clearly. He's got one hand. I'm surprised he can hold on to the fucking thing in the first place. The table's like, you know, eight feet in the air or whatever. His feet are a couple feet off the ground. His other hand, he's shoving a piece of cake into his mouth. I hate flying! Yeah. My question to you is, is do you think the table was flat as it rose, or do you think it was angled because of his weight? Oh, for sure. It was was tipped 100%. (laughs) <laughs> the thing I think it was like the Titanic after it hit the iceberg <laughs> yeah yeah good image good image <laughs> right before it snapped in half yeah well what do you say um, should we go on to my doozy of a section here uh, we should yeah you got a doozy of a section here I know right well here I go alright as the bridge burners finished assembling their gear, the sentries on the east side were calling out that the black Maranth had arrived. Moran, plagued by a growing unease, strode amongst the gathered soldiers. Off to one side, Picker sat watching the captain. She was the only one to see him taking yet another step and then simply vanishing. Picker bolted to her feet, telling Spindle to go get Quick Ben. Spindle had the balls to ask why. Picker screamed at him that someone had just snatched their captain and to find Quick Ben. Woofta. <laughs> that was a doozy. Cool. Hope y'all didn't start eating yeah. popcorn. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, you know, I don't have anything to particularly point out. I think that Paran's being, being plagued by these growing unease um, is essentially kind of the start of what's to come. I don't think I've got anything to add to that. All right. Well, you want to move on to your popcorn-filled section as well? Yeah, section 13 here. The vision of busy soldiers fled his sight as Pran found himself facing both Rake and Kalor with their weapons drawn. Behind them were Korlat and the Maibi beyond them, a ring of Tystandi. Countless eyes were upon him, but he was not the only one in shock. He heard a cry for help and looked up as a huge table turning in the air, looked up at a at a huge table turning in the air. He saw Krupp hanging from the table. On the underside, painted in bright yellow and now glowing colors, was the image of a man. It took him a few moments to recognize it was him. Pain filled him and blackness fell over him, swallowing him whole. So do you think that Silver Fox brought him here? I guess I'm not sure. Or do you think it was like the table? I I don't know which of those would be more likely or if it's something else entirely. Gotcha. I guess maybe I'd probably lean more towards the table, I guess. But I'm, I'm not even like probably 50% convinced at that. 
Yeah, but I mean, like, think think about what just took place, right? We had this kind of confrontational nature between Calor, Corlat, Brood, Rake, Whiskey Jack. Silver Foxes is there, right? She's watching this all unfold. What if this is her way of bringing in what can answer questions? Yeah, I I don't know. It's just such a, a weird deal. Yeah, fair enough. The one... The one thing that I kept that that like kept me thinking on this short section was like how bizarre would it be to see this table with your face painted on it? I think it would be one of two things. Obviously, he can react in one of many ways, really. But I think it's more or less one way would be a sign of acceptance. Like, okay, like this is legit. I'm not just hearing about it. I'm fucking seeing it now. Or two, it would make you run away that much harder. I feel like if it were me, I'd be bolting out that door. Yeah. <laughs> like, like who the hell is joking around and painted my face on the bottom side of this table? And why did you do it? I don't know. Like, And I'm imagining it's probably a pretty good painting. Like, it's not like I fucking did it because I suck at painting. Like, this is probably pretty good. So that would freak me out. I'd want to be a thousand miles the other direction. Well, I mean, you know why the table is a good representation of Paran, right? Mm, why? Because the other decks of the dragons, or the other deck of dra- or a deck of dragons is, is essentially like built within the table, right? So for him to have the card painted on the underside is a visual representation of the fact that he's the master of the deck. I don't know how you're so good at this, ma'am, but you're good at it. I try. I try. <laughs> you do a great job. It's funny. It's it's funny. There's two things that are super funny to me in this moment. One, Paran didn't want to say goodbye to Silver Fox in his conversation with Whiskey Jack, and here he is, right next to Silver Fox, surrounded by a bunch of people who are like, just as, and if not more equally confused than he is about what the fuck is going on. And two, I already forgot. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's like, uh, you know, as you get older, they say the memory is the first thing to go. And then the second one, I forget. Right. Exactly. Yep. So I just, I thought it was ironic that she, he didn't want to say goodbye to her, but yet here he was. It's true. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have some, some cod, subconscious feeling that he'd run into her? I mean, they have a, you know, a private link between each other. So, I mean, who knows what's going on between or what, you know, how chatty that link is. Is he sending virtual dick pics? Maybe to a (laughs) fucking 15 year old dude. Come on. Oh, God. Why would you? Yeah. Uh, The redacted. All right. All right. You're still envisioning her as a tattersail and that's fine. I feel like that's the point, is that we're not really supposed to see her as Silver Fox, but Tattersail. I'm on my fourth beer. I'm getting a little buzzed. So. All right, then. Well, I mean... I, that I, doesn't excuse poor behavior. That's fair. But uh, what do you say? Do you want to move on to this this next one here? Yeah. What are we on here now? I lost track. Section 14. That is you. Yep. 
The Mybe saw the young captain buckle, dropping to his knees, as if drawing tight around an agony of some sort. Her attention darted to her daughter, in time to see the bound coils of power snake outward from Silver Fox, slipping around people, then upward to touch the table. The four legs snapped and Krupp plummeted to the earth, landing on top of a crowd of Tistiandi. The table in the air now steadied, and the underside faced Rake and Kalor, the image of Paran emanating sorcery. Wisps of it reached down to surround the kneeling captain in glittering silver chains. Beside her, she heard Quick Ben say that this was the largest card of the deck of dragons he's ever seen. He stepped forward and announced to everyone to forgive his intrusion. He announced to everyone that while it seems everyone here is ready for a confrontation, that the lack of wisdom and inviting violence when it's clear that nobody knows what the fuck is happening here should be determined before taking any drastic measures. Rake smiled at the mage and sheathed his sword. Rake said that these were cautious words, but wise nonetheless. He asked who the mage was. Quick Ben said that he was just a soldier that had come to retrieve the captain. At that moment, I wrote Krupper. Krupp emerged <laughs> and strode seemingly unaware to halt directly between Paran and Rake. He looked up and said that this was an unseemly conclusion to Krupp, Krupp's post-breakfast repast. Had the meeting adjourned? God, what a fucking putz. Fucking Krupp. Yeah, he's ready to go take a nap. He just stuffed his face. He's ready to nap. Right, exactly. A couple of things here. Again, a really short-ish section. But the silver chains kind of coming down from the table... Um, I'm guessing that this is kind of a re visual representation that he doesn't have a choice and that the more he tries to run, the more the tug and pull of the chains makes him sick or ill. And I just thought that was kind of a cool visual. I think I've got this figured out, Justin. Ooh, let's hear it. So per my theory, Gnose is going to have to kill Tavor yep. to avenge Felicen. Yes. And then after that, he will take the place of the chained god. God damn it, I've had too much crippled to drink. God. The crippled god. He's going to be chained, and his hound's blood somehow is going to cure her from the poison from the crippled god. That is my guess. Hmm. Interesting. That probably will not happen. No, probably not. I think that we should talk about this in your next section. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, the other thing that I had here is that Krupp just seemingly unaware, oblivious, stopped directly in front of Paran and Rake. And I want, I just am wondering why that needed to be said. Is there significance? Does Krupp have some type of influence on some things? Like, or is he just being oblivious? Is he just being Krupp? I think he's just being corrupt. Just because it says seemingly unaware, I don't think necessarily means that he isn't aware. He's probably just playing it off. Like, Krupp knows what he's doing. Like cutting the tension? Yeah. Like, he's a sneaky fucker. Like, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And the other thing that I just loved how Quick Ben just kind of came in here and just directly said what needed to be said. Like, hey, look, we don't know what is going on here, but what's the point in getting violent and confronting each other about it when we haven't even understood what it is yet? 
and even if we can use it for our purpose. And Rake, like, immediately just like, oh, cautious, but very wise words. We should heed this, you know? So I thought that was I thought that was just really cool thing for a quick Ben to observe. Right. And as if they don't have bigger problems to deal with, you know, like Kafistan, I imagine that's going to be kind of a big fucking deal, right? Yep, exactly. But those are the only thoughts that I had on that that short section. Uh, And this next one that you have is is my favorite in this whole chapter. So I'm excited to talk about it. All right. Um, yeah, I, I don't know this, this whole sub book, I know we've kind of chatted about it, but I've again, and I think it's just from how, how good gardens and dead house gates have been like, this is kind of like the roller coaster taking a dip before it goes back up again is kind of what it feels like to me. So I, this, like, it's been a little harder to read just because there hasn't been, I don't want to say action, but it just hasn't had the, I guess, excitement that the uh, other books have had. Well, I feel like this sub book is really, it It honest, honestly feels like it would have been better as like an ending to Gardens of the Moon. You know, just because Gardens of the Moon like ramped up and up and up and up and up. And then you're not really released from that. You're kind of left on like a really big cliffhanger. Right. But just at the end of the book, all four of them are walking in a street and you're like, okay, what the fuck next? You know, and then you get thrown into the second book where you're meeting all new cast of characters. So you never really get this resolve. And so now you come into the sub book and you are getting this resolve to the end of Gardens of the Moon. And I think that's its purpose. It feels better. But. I wonder once we get into this next sub book, if you'll still feel the same way, you know, if, if you, maybe you'll think, you know what, you know, maybe it was slower and and I don't think it's bad. It's just, it's just a totally different pace than what we've been grown accustomed to through these first two books. I mean, Uh, is it really though? I mean, I feel like gardens. I totally do. I totally do. But I feel like dead house gates, it took the first sub book to kind of get to the whirlwind. But there was, I, I guess I hate to use the word action, but there was, there were things transpiring and, and yes, things are still transpiring here, but they're obviously they're different things. It's, it's more transactional than it is storytelling. Yeah. I don't know. I'm struggling to put it into words right now. It's just, it's just like things are slowing down and I don't think that's a bad thing. No. I'm sure once we get into the next book, we'll be like, okay, well, that was all necessary. Or or I'm going to feel that way because I've, I felt like this is quite a bit slower than. True. But I feel like House of Chains is probably going to have the same type of beginning, right? Where we're going to get reacquainted with the characters from Dead House Gates. You know, things are going to kind of tie up, you know, within that first book. Some of the things that transpired, you know after dead house gates so i guess we'll see yeah maybe maybe but maybe not i don't know maybe it'll hit the ground running too right yeah absolutely who knows i mean i i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't go to the point of saying it's slow i'm enjoying everything i i love how it's tying back into the first book i like how we're getting these like subtle reminders but they're reminders that like really make you think about and recollect the gardens of the moon book they're not just like 
hey, remember that one time in Gardens of the Moon where blah, blah, blah happened? So, yeah, I mean, it's like I said, I mean, it feels slower to me and I don't think that's bad, but no. it's just it's just different. And I, it's a different pace that I, I won't say that I'm, I guess, accustomed to. And I think it's going to change here pretty quick. Granted, I mean, we're only five chapters into the book, and that five chapters puts us, you know, 150 or so pages into the book. We're not very far into this. No, but not it's just, And we've been reading it every two weeks. So yeah, I feel like on average, most readers are going to get through five chapters within two or three days. Maybe. I mean, yeah, depending what they have for time and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, let's get on with it because, you know, we got to wrap this up tonight. <laughs> All right. As the power bled into Pran, it felt like his, in his mind that he was falling. Then he hit the ground, the sound of his armor echoing. The pain was gone. Gasping and shivering, he raised his head. Dim lights from lanterns showed him he was in a long, low-ceilinged hallway. Heavy-looking twin doors divided the oddly uneven wall on his right, while on the left, opposite of the doors, was a wide entrance. On all sides, the stone walls seemed to resemble tree bark, and at the far end of the hall was a bronze door with two shapeless humps laying at the inner threshold. Paran picked himself up and stumbled towards the shapes. One was dressed as an assassin. The woman looked as though the man had drug her through the threshold, as she, was, she had a nasty head wound, among others. He recognized they were both Daru, and that he had seen them both before. It was Ralik Nam and Vorkin. He recognized that he must be in Darujistan then. Silver Fox's words returned to his mind. The table, the card, with my image painted upon it. Jen Isand rule, the unaligned newly comes to the deck of dragons. Power unknown. I have walked within the sword. It seems now that I can walk anywhere. And this place, I am in the finnest house. Gods, I am in a house of the Azath. He heard a sound behind him, turning. The twin doors opened. Paran stepped back, drawing his sword. A jag hut stood before him, nearly fresh, fleshless, and bones protruding everywhere. Speaking, it welcomed Paran and named itself Raced. Guardian, prisoner, damned. The Azath greets him as much as a sweating stone is able. Unlike the two sleeping in the threshold, he can see he has no need for doors. He is not here in truth, only in spirit. Pran responded, saying, If he says so. Pran's mind went back to the night of the Fet and came to the conclusion that this is what was set free by Lorne and the Talan Imus, or at least what was left. Pran asked why he was here, and the Jaghut told him to follow. They went down steps, and the air grew warmer. Pran asked Raced how long the two in the threshold had been asleep. Raced said he measures no days since he had been taken within the house. Since then, few outsiders had had sought entry, probed with sorceries, walked the yard, but the house had denied them all. The two within the threshold were here when he awoke and had not moved since. It follows, then, that the house has already chosen. Paran thought as the deadhouse did Kellenved and Dancer. He asked if Raced had tried to wake them. Raced had said he had not. There was no need. Paran asked if they were guardians as well. Raced did not think so. Perhaps they were his servants. 
Brian said he did not want or need servants and that he did not give a single fuck what the Azath expected out of him. The house was wrong to put its faith in him. He told Race to tell the house and for it to find another. Race said he was the master of the deck. Such a thing could not be undone. A master was needed. So now, he's here. Paran reiterated that he did not want the job. Race told him that he wept rivers of tears for him. They had arrived. Race said he could no go no further and told Paran to walk into the darkness. Paran asked what would happen if he refused. Race said he would kill him. Paran said the Azath was unforgiving. Race said he would not kill him for the Azath, but for the time he made him waste, and that he has no sense of humor. Paran asked what kind of sense of humor he, or Raced, had. He only told Paran that if he refused, nothing would happen. The Azath was patient. He would make the journey eventually. However, the pleasure of his company only comes once, and that was this trip. Paran didn't know how he would make a second trip without his cheery company. Ray said he would probably just be miserable if there was any justice in the world. Bran asked if there was. Race asked, why would he ask a Jaghut? And if they were going to stand here forever, just pick a direction. They were all the same to him. Bran asked why the Azath needs of a master of the deck. What had happened? Race said a war had begun. Bran shivered, asking if it involved the houses of the Azath. Race said no entity would be spared. Not the houses, not the gods, not even a single human. Pran said he had enough wars to deal with. The Jag had told him they were all one. Pran didn't want to think about any of this. Race told him not to, in that case. Pran continued his journey. On his third step, the environment changed. It became brighter and the Jag hut it became brighter and the Jag hut and the stairs had disappeared. In the stones beneath him, the card of the deck of dragons were carved into them. But it was more than just a deck of dragons. There were cards he didn't recognize. Lost houses. Countless. Forgotten. Unaligned. He stepped forward to study one image. He focused on the card and felt himself moving into the scene. A chill crept across his face. The air smelled of mud and wet fur. Crows cackled in the distance. The hut in the carving now was in front of him. The hut was made of bones and tusks of some enormous creature. Paran realized he could travel at will into each and every card that ever existed in the deck of dragons. Along with feeling excitement and wonder, he also felt an undercurrent of terror as the deck was home to many unforgiving places. Paran approached the entrance. It appeared that whoever had lived here had only left moments ago. Within it were two thrones on a de dais. A dais of human-looking skulls. More likely, Talanimus. He knew this place. The hold of the beasts. Long before the first throne, this was the seat of power for the Talanimus. When they were still flesh and blood. Long before they initiated the ritual of Talan. It was a realm lost to its makers. Abandoned. He wondered then, what was now? The warren of Talan, the Talan, the Talan used. That warren must have been born of the ritual itself. A physical manifestation of the vow of more immortality. Aspected. Not of life or even death, but dust. Paran realized they, the Talan Imas, had outlasted even their own gods. No end in sight. 
He felt sadness. He thought they had been so alone for so long, but now they're gathering, coming to the child for benediction and something more. He wondered why there were two thrones, not just one. Another card a few paces away caught his attention. A crimson glow hovered above it. He walked to it looking down. The image of a sleeping woman dominated the image. Her flesh swirled and spun. Pran crouched looking closer. Her skin was depthless. Skin, not skin. He recognized this as burn. Nausea swept over Pran as he saw a broken figure chained to burn's own flesh. From this figure down the chains that connected to burn, poison flowed to her. Pran thought to himself, she could sense the sickness flowing into her and she chose to sleep. She chose to escape her own flesh in order to fight the one who was killing her. She made herself a weapon, her entire spirit and all its power into a single forging, a hammer, a hammer that was capable, capable of breaking anything and Caladan Brood was the man to wield it. But breaking those chains meant freeing the crippled God. And if he was free, then he would unleash a horrible vengeance, enough to wipe out all life from the surface of the world. But Byrne didn't care about that. She would simply begin again. Now he saw it, saw the truth. The bastard refused to defy the crippled, crippled God's unleashing of a deadly will that would see them all destroyed. Caladan Brood refuses her. He pulled himself away from the card. Raced was at his side, asking if he found knowledge, a gift, or a curse. Paran said it was both. Raced asked which he would embrace then. Paran didn't know what he meant with this question. Raced asked if he cried tears of joy or sorrow. Wiping his face, Paran said he wanted to leave. So that was your favorite. That, that was your favorite, huh? Yep. It is a good section. I will agree. And this and I oh I'm I'm sure you picked a lot more out of this than I did. I'm sure you saw me typing as you were reading, so <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I'll first off say that this was what was spoiled to me in a YouTube comment. Um I was unaware that Rayist was the guardian of the Finistazaf. And so I'm thankful that you know, it. I didn't have to wait till the end of the book like you had to uh, in Dead House Gates. And again, I, you know, I have no animosity towards that who spoiled this. I'm sure it was just out of excitement to share something with us that we didn't know. But even now, looking back at it, like, I mean, it, it makes sense, right? Well, there were many opportunities where we could have pulled it together. The one being... And obviously we didn't. Right. The one being in Dead House Gates, uh, when we met the Kachain Jamal Guardian, um, when they were admitted into Tremolor, when Moby was admitted into Tremolor. There was a, I don't It was like the bones that. of a Kachain Jamal, Jamali, lying on the floor. Not remembering that. Anyway. Um, sure. <laughs> it, it was said that he was once a Guardian, and... You know, on the double side, okay, so a change Mal was a guardian of the Azath, which means that that was probably the first soul that that, is, that Tremolor took. So in its creation, that unsuspecting change Mal ended up being the guardian. 
you know so well I'm, I'm glad you didn't have to wait yeah till the end of the book and i guess i don't feel like i mean it's a super huge spoiler like no it's not like it ruins the end of the book or you know something like that no not at all not at all again I just, you know no animosity uh just assuming it was purely out of excitement so right yeah i don't think there's anything i i never saw it i you know i mean you told me you had something spoiled but yeah i don't think there was anything malicious yeah the other thing that i had was when they're talking about outsiders had sought entry and probed with sorceries walked the yard but the house had denied them all i'm assuming that the most recent would have been boshelaine and corporal brooch because remember in like the first chapter when they tell gruntle that they had explored the finnest house so i feel like they probably that's a good thought with sorceries that's a good thought yeah um i know that you had a question about uh Reist didn't think so and perhaps Raliknam and vorkan were were his servants i know that you said i don't know yeah yeah i don't know why i i felt like that was at the time when i was typing this and rereading this i guess i'm not sure why i thought this was some sort of an attempt at like a joke or something but sure. um apparently at the time i did right now i guess i don't really remember why but um i don't know if you have any thoughts on that i do um and probably a very long-winded one so it it goes back to the table right so the table admitted these like sorceress silver chains that engulfed paran so my guess is that the table is like Paran's Warren. It's his Azath. It's the entrance to other Azath houses, like we found out at the end of chapter four. You remember when Silver Fox was explaining all the holds and stuff? And no. how like the houses in the Azath are more or less related. I think that I, I don't know why or how the Finnist house would be related to Paran because they don't seem to be interconnected. But I would imagine that the the Finnist house needs an Azath as well. Or, you know, the Finnist house is an Azath, but maybe it needs an associated house with it. And being that Paran is new, well, he could potentially become not, not necessarily an unaligned card, but have his own house or hold. It's kind of like where I'm going along with that. But to get back to my original point where Reyes is saying that, oh, well, perhaps they are servants. Well, if that's true, each house has a hold that has like a knight, a soldier, a magi, an assassin, you know, a king, etc. Right. So maybe it's possible that Ralic and Vorkan would be those players in that house. Just to kind of like fill it out, basically. Right. Recruiting. Okay. So that's kind of where I'm going along along with that. You got you got spots to fill. You need bodies for them. Right. I'm uh, why the Azath took these two in the first place. I, again, I don't know. I think we'll talk about that in a little bit. The, well, they they had need, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, it's hard to. I feel like again, I have pieces, but I don't have a way of really tying them together. So I'm just kind of like speculating and making assumptions based on kind of like what I understand, which may be a lot. It may not be very much at all, et cetera. But when Reist and Paran are talking about why the Azath needs a master of the deck, 
what had happened, Bray said a war had begun. And, you know, in a later section, we'll kind of get a little bit more clarity on this, but it's essentially a war against the crippled God. So that's, I know I talked about it earlier, you know, the war with the crippled God and the Panion. Do you, I mean, do you think it's one war? Do you think they're separate just occurring at the same time? I think that they're, they are related. And I think this is something that comes up in a later section as well. If I remember right, I, th- I thought I felt like there were just separate things occurring at the same time, but I guess I don't remember for sure. I mean, they could be. Not a lot of information is given as to why I think otherwise, but we could talk about it when we get there. Sure. But I think this one was your next point. Um, the the hold of beasts. So that was, I'm pretty sure that showed up in Deadhouse Gates, like when Heberick and Felice and, and Bowden were like in that cave or whatever. Cult. And they, cult, um, they saw, you know, like that wall or whatever it was. Yep. But I'm pretty was, sure that somebody said hold of beasts there, right? And it was empty. So what do you think that means now? Anything or not necessarily? I think that it means that, um, you know, uh, there's definitely a relationship between Soul Taken and the Talani Mass. So I think that they're in, in this tile that he enters into, these comments kind of align together. There's two thrones, right? There's two thrones that are empty. And then it was said that this particular tile that he entered, it was the first throne was the seat of power for the Talani Mass when they were still flesh and blood. So essentially, the Talani Mass abandoned their house, their hold, in the pursuit of eliminating Jaghuts. And so now that hold, that house is empty, very similar to the one that Kellenved and Dancer stumbled across that is now the House of Shadow. So basically, it's ripe for the picking. There are people who could take over that house, ascendants, gods, etc. So this must be unknown to anybody but Paran at this moment. Do you think somebody will take it over? I do. I think that I'm guessing two scenarios. Silver Fox, who, as we have learned in previous chapters, you know, Quick Ben was able to deduce that there is some soul taken abilities with her. So I think the first throne, the two seats, the two thrones, one was Talan, like, you know, uh, the king of I House Talan, and then Soul Taken on his right-hand side. So I think that Silver Fox, is it potentially Silver Fox and Paran will occupy, and this will become the House of Chains, is kind of where my mind is going. Another scenario I could think of is Ralic and Vorkan as servants to Paran. Because Master of the Deck kind of assumes that he's above the houses. He's able to manipulate and move pieces to where he needs them to be. I think him having the knowledge of an empty house is going to give him an advantage in how he can utilize different ascendants, essentially. We might have to bookmark that and see how it turns out. Right. Again, I could be very, very wrong in all of that. But like this stuff just makes me so giddy to talk about. And (laughs) I just I wish that I had more information about it. And all the pieces are there. But what it means in the end, ah, 
I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either yet. But it, it does make it fun to talk about and speculate and then see what happens. Right, exactly. So that was that was the, the main that was what got me super excited. Was seeing raced again, knowing what he is in a concept that I can understand. So now I imagine that when I go back and eventually reread Gardens of the Moon, all of that is really gonna kind of make sense to me. Yeah, I kinda you know, I wasn't I wasn't sure we were gonna see raced again, so that caught me a little off guard. I had a sneaky feeling that we were going to see him. I didn't think it was going to happen in this capacity, though. Gotcha. I think this is my last point for this section, but where, you know, the chains connected to burn, poison flowed to her. Um, I I don't know why, but I just, I feel like somehow that this is maybe where the Talan will be fighting towards. I I kind of feel like maybe this is where Brood and Quick Ben will end up, and maybe they'll have the Talan at their back. Because to me, like that seems like the more important fight, right? Like maybe it sucks if you lose Capistan, but not everything on the fucking planet dies if you lose Capistan. Right. Yeah. Burn die. Burn dies. Everything might fucking die. Mm-hmm. So I I don't know. I I feel there's just a feeling in me that that's the Talanimus will somehow be a part of that fight. I don't know. I don't know if they can. I think this is the reason why they have recruited or sought out a flesh and blood bone caster, right? Is because how do the Talan, the undead Talan, travel? Basically wherever they want for the most part. But through what? Earth. And if the Earth is destroyed, how can they travel? Dust in the wind, man. I don't know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, I. You know, like yeah. they can't. If there's no like, world. They can't do anything about it. They're not connected to burn. They just use use what she, her gifts to humanity to get around. So I think that they had to do something. So way back in Gardens of the Moon, they were on to the crippled god, and I think he was mentioned like during that time, very briefly. So it it just it, it's all kind of making sense. Like it it if if that is correct, if they have a stake in it because they can no longer pursue their destruction of Jaghuts or whatever their purpose is for whatever the second gathering is, they can't travel anywhere. They're gonna be stuck. Immortality stuck wherever they end up. That's, Wouldn't that suck? Like yeah. you're just wherever you're at, that's where you are forever. That would be pretty miserable right so they had to do something so it it kind of explains the maybe too it makes sense right kill one for the many the utilitarian choice here one soul versus however many souls kind of selfish when you think about it from a perspective doesn't make it an easy choice still Mm -hmm. i mean i guess from like our perspective i suppose well, it was easy for them, right? I mean, think about the Jaghut mother in the prologue. You know, they felt like they were doing her service by killing her quickly. Yeah. So the Maibi is just a means to an end. It's purely just a vessel to birth the flesh and blood bone caster. But again, no arguments for me. We'll no see, arguments here. We'll see, we'll see how I do. We've got a whole book for it to unfold, a whole series for it to unfold. Yeah, but you always do a pretty good job with this stuff. Like, 
Not that I'm like looking to argue with you, but like you have solid points. I'm only good with people. I have been like a hundred percent wrong on story elemented things. I'm good with like people being other people and like the clues that lead to that. But I feel like whenever I guess at something that is like story arc, I'm usually wrong. So like a book being real or not? Yeah, like something like that. Exactly. <laughs> Boy, did I well, you ready to Yeah. You ready to move on? Uh I think you had one more point, right? Oh, did I? Yeah. Um yeah, where Caladan Brood refused her. Um I don't really know what it kind of confused me. I feel like this So I don't know if you Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 because you're going to explain this, and I'm going to soak it in, so go ahead. Okay, fair enough. Um, it does get explained in a later chapter, so or a later section, excuse me. Okay, I was going to say, what are you talking about here, Justin? Yeah. I always, like, mix up. I get dyslexic about chapters and sections. I know that I say it all the time. On to the next chapter when, really, it's just the next section. <laughs> That's not the only time that, well, I don't... I don't think it's ever really given me pause like it did there. I'm like, what the yeah. fuck are you talking about? Another chapter. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But yeah, I mean, I think that that will come around um, in a later section. So we can definitely revisit it. Okay. Um, if you're ready then to, to go on, then yeah. I'm ready. His eyes blinked open and found himself on his knees. A dozen paces away was a bemused son of darkness. A hand rested on his shoulder, and he looked up to find Silver Fox standing beside him. Others were standing around him. Quick Ben moved closer to Captain Paran. His eyes held steady on Rake, though. The captain closed his eyes. His head was spinning. He felt uprooted by all he had discovered, his thoughts of himself and how he'd become the master of the Deck of Dragons, a recruit to a war he knew nothing about. Paran growled and asked what in the hell was going on. Silver Fox said that she drew on power. Paran thought to himself about this power and him being the master of the deck. He thought about how they both had begun their journey, and now he thought that they were destined to arrive at the same place, the second gathering. He wondered who will ascend to those two long and forgotten thrones. Finishing his thought, he wonders where Silver Fox will lead the Talani Maths. Animator Ray commented to Brood that he didn't expect such a tight reunion. Moran's head snapped around and he saw the warlord. Inside his head, he thought about the decision that Brood might have to make. Kill us all or the goddess he serves. Paran would keep Brood secret as he didn't see the point in revealing it. Rake apologizes to everyone and points out that Quick Ben was right about waiting to see how these powers unfold. Kaller interjected that it may already be too late. The child's sorcery was to land and it's been a long time since it's been awakened. If they start now, they could cut down this creature, Rake said, and if they should fail, what enemy would that have made for themselves? Brood comments that it was about time that the notion of strategy arrived. He proclaimed that neutrality would be the course they took until Silver Fox's power revealed itself. He welcomed Rake back and asked if he had information to depart regarding the status of Moonspawn. Brood turned to Paran and asked if he could do something about that damned floating table. Paran stood up and explained that he wasn't a mage. Quick Ben interjected and told the warlord that he'd like to give it a try. Brood looked at Dujek, and Dujek nodded his permission at Quick Ben. Rake commented that Quick Ben was no ordinary soldier. 
Quick Ben said that he appreciated challenges. He added that he requested that the Son of Darkness to, to not quest at him while he did this as he values his privacy. Rake said that, as he wished, Krupp breaks attention by asking if anyone was hungry. Is Krupp ever not hungry? Like, In, come on. Well, it's because he got interrupted with the floating table. He's Krupp is just a fucking third leg. That is all he is. Yeah. It, it, he's a dick, is what you're saying. A hollow one, just filled with food. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so, the first thing that I had is Aran wondered who will ascend to those two long and forgotten thrones. So do you see how that kind of ties into the, your previous section there? Um, you understand I, I that they're know. unoccupied, right? Like the hold is there for the taking, you know, anybody oh. over, right? Gotcha. Yeah. Sometimes I just need you to dumb things down for me, Justin. That's fine. Um, but, you know, kind of what I already mentioned is just, does this mean that whoever takes over those two thrones, that there will be a new house and... I, I still think it's the House of Chains. I think that Paran, in some way, shape, or form, is going to recruit a couple people, or himself and Tattersail will ascend to these thrones. And, you know. Tattersail uh, or Silver Fox? Both. Silver Fox. I didn't know if maybe you thought there's going to be some sort of separation there or something. Oh, with Tattersail at the forefront. Gotcha. Okay. Sure. That's fair. And, you know, it just kind of makes me think that, you know, again, what I already talked about, but the whole premise of the Talan going through this ritual, like they knew that they were going to be abandoning their house. Did they not think of the consequences? Did they think that it would remain hidden forever? I mean, like, granted, it has been hidden for a long ass time, but still just... Why would you do that just to annihilate a race of mainly peaceful creatures outside of a few tyrants here and there? Maybe it was just something they didn't anticipate. Or, yeah, maybe. I mean, because you can, you can plan for whatever you want, but there's always, there's always something that you didn't account for, and maybe that was just the situation. Well, right, because they did the ritual because the Jag Hut would essentially create these mountains of ice that they could no longer traverse. So, hey, let's be undead so that we can traverse underneath it through the ground. That's kind of like my headcanon around that particular situation. That tells me that the Jag Hut had thwarted their house. They had thwarted their warrant. Nothing to add for you. Yeah. And then also, fucking Quick Ben valuing his privacy which i understand i wouldn't want anybody questing after me while i'm using my powers either but it's just throughout this book already there's been many times where quick ben has been called like a man of secrets or a snake and privacy have come up around quick ben a lot and he's definitely hiding something about himself like that's not nothing new that we don't know but is it just is it could be that he's just trying to hide what he knows about burn or is it something more serious like maybe potentially being in cahoots with shadow throw i mean maybe i don't know i just got the sense that he doesn't want he doesn't want people to know how like powerful how strong he is you know so he can keep using that to his advantage yeah 
uh, maybe I guess it, it's just there's so many questions around quick Ben at this point and I wonder I feel like we're just gonna get a slow steady stream of what he does yeah I, I think yeah more more will be revealed as we go yeah um did you get the sense that Silver Fox essentially initiated everything that happened to Paran with the table because she drew upon power? I guess I honestly I don't remember. I'm not sure. Probably not, to be perfectly honest. I mean, that's how I see it after, you know, summarizing and rereading this section or this chapter is that she kind of initiated the table to chain Paran and take him into the Finnist house, right? It's dark. Yeah. But I mean, if you think about it, the Finnist and the Azath are they're new, right? They're they're a newer thing. They're a new Azath. But at the same time, Paran is new to being the master of the deck, whether he wants to or not. There's two empty thrones available for the taking. It's it's just it it seems like all the pieces are there for him to do what he wants to, or what he can or what he has the potential to do. There's a lot of possibilities, I think. Yeah. Again, uh, just the level of confusion that all these characters are facing with the uncertainty of now Paran and Silver Fox. Like, what is going on with both of these two? Which, (laughs) that is the reason why I think that they're going to take over this house. This empty Talan house. The hold of the beasts. It's a good thought. Because... I can definitely get on board with it. Because... On top of Paran being the master of the deck, he also does have Hound's blood coursing through him. Hound is a beast. It doesn't say hold of the soul taken. It says hold of the beast. Right. So, yeah, I'm not disagreeing at all. So Silver Fox to land, reclaiming their house, and also like helping to save Burn, and then Paran as the beast. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah. But I think but I think you could be definitely on to something. Yeah, I feel like I definitely am. It's like on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be there for a while. Maybe. But yeah, that's all I had about that section. So I don't know if you had anything. I did not have anything to add. All right, sir. Well, let's uh we got four more sections left, sir. <laughs> we're we're getting there. This this is gonna be a fucking beast of an episode uh mm-hmm. hold of the beast for sure yep yes it is <clears throat> all right section 17 the maibi edged away as everyone else was distracted she tried to run but her body would not allow it she limped along tears filling her eyes and whimpering as she gasped for breath she begged the spirits to take mercy on her pity her begging them to take her soul thinking them to be cruel ancestors She wore minor tribal wards made of copper on her wrists and ankles to try to alleviate her aches and pains, though they felt cold as ice against her skin, cold as a rapist's touch. The rivy spirits refused her pleas, mocked her, and laughed. She called out and fell to her knees, the impact knocking the air out of her lungs. A voice murmured above her flesh, which is the life within? These, cherished friend are the words of birth given in so many forms in countless languages. They are joy and pain, loss and sacrifice. They give voice to the binds of motherhood and more. They are 
the binds to life itself. The Maibi raised her head while Crone sat on the tense ridgepole and said she was not immune to grief. You see, my dear, tell no one you have seen me so weakened by love. How can I comfort you? The Maibi shook her head and said she could not. Crone said she, or Silver Fox, was more her than the others, more than Tattersail, more than Nightchill, and more than the Talanimus. The Maibi interrupted Crone, asking if she really saw her, truly saw her. She was only bones and dried skin and nothing but endless aches. Each moment of this terrible life, this existence, she edged closer to... The Maibi dropped her head and finished her sentence to hatred. As she began to cry, Crone asked if she would die now. She understood. She, a mother must not hate the child she had birthed, yet she demanded so much of herself. Screaming, the Maibi said she, Silver Fox, had stolen her life. As she clenched her fists, blood fell from them. She looked at her fists as if they didn't belong to her. Crone, she whispered, she's stolen my life. Crone spread her wings and landed on the ground before her and said that she must talk to her. Maibi said she couldn't. Crone said she must be made to understand. Maibi said she knows, but what could she do about it? Would Crone have her ask her daughter to stop growing? The river would continue flowing, unceasing. Crone said rivers could be dams or diverted. She told Crone that this one could not be. Crone said she would not accept defeat in this and she swore she would find a way. The Maibi told her not to waste her time. There was no answer for this. Her youth was gone. No way to return it by alchemy or sorcery. What the Telan Warren demands cannot be undone. Even if Crone was somehow able to su succeed, then what does she have? Just some old woman for decades trapped in her body? That would not be mercy. It would be a curse. Coralad approached from behind and helped the Maibi to her feet and said to come with her. She felt ashamed by how weak she was. Her defenses had all crumbled and her pride hardly existed. She came to terms with her situation as death was nothing any mortal could escape. But she also wondered where her death was. Why did the gods seem to forbid her release? She decided since the gods had already taken everything from her, she would defy them. She told Corlat to bring her to the tent. Corlat said no. The Maibi tried to repeat herself, but Corlat said she had heard her. The answer is no. She would remain at her side, and that she was not alone in her faith. The Maibi cut her off. Faith? She's ticed Andy. Did she take her for a fool with her claims of faith? Looking away, Corlat said perhaps she was right. Instantly, the Maibi wished she could take that back. Corlat continued, saying, all the same, she would not abandon her to despair. The Maibi said she was familiar with being a prisoner and warned her, warned everyone that hatred was taking root within her. Even with all her good intentions, she begged her to let it end. Corlat said she underestimated their resilience and that she would not succeed in turning them away. The Maibi said they would drag her into hatred, and that price would be all the good within her, all that she, or Corlat, or the others, might have once valued. Corlat asked if she did this all to negate their efforts. The Maibi said not intentionally. She had lost all choice to her daughter, and now to her. They will create a creature of spite. She begged Corlat, pleading that if she really cared for her, 
to let her end this journey. Corlett said she would not give her permission to kill herself. If it's going to be hate that fuels her, then so be it, for she was under the care of the Tice Dandy. Admitting, the, admitting defeat, the Maivi thought that Corlett had won for now. Man, what a powerful section. This, I think, was probably my favorite section. I see you have a lot of comments on it. Yeah, I've got a few. Uh, I mean, the first, Jesus Christ, just the description, you know, like cold as a rapist touch. Like, holy fuck, dude. Mm-hmm. Like, I read that and I was like, Jesus, like, that is quite the description. I don't really have anything else to say about that, but I was like, oh, my God. I feel like it signifies the importance of how she's feeling right now. I mean, like she don't want to be alive. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know, but that was, I mean, that's, that is quite a line <laughs> written in this book. Uh, I don't think it's a bad line, but I was like, Jesus, like it's that one hit me pretty hard. Right. I mean, she doesn't want this. She doesn't no. want this, but what other choice does she have? She doesn't really have any other choice right now. Mm-mm. Um, my next, th- you know, the maybe she falls to her knees, and just that, you know, knocks the wind out of her. I can't imagine being that weak where just dropping to my knees makes me lose my breath. Yeah. So that, I mean, just tells me one how weak she is. But not only that, she's still pushing through it. Right. Well, and on top of that, like, I think it uh, encapsulates just how far she's come, just in how much we've read. Like, she is, this to me tells me that she's gotten older. Oh, yeah. I, I guess I don't know, like, what year equivalent I would give her, but I mean, I, I would, feels like she's like in her, like, 80s or something, you know, I mean. Like, let's get this this broad in the nursing home here. Like, right? Yeah. It it's it's to me it's meant as a passage of time on her age. Yeah. What did you think of Crone? I never would have imagined Crone to be so empathetic here. Well, I mean, I feel like we got a little bit of that before, uh, and I, I can't remember, you know, what she said at all. But it, I wasn't that surprised because. I know earlier in maybe not this chapter, maybe a previous chapter, there was some empathy there from from Crone. So I'm not I wasn't too surprised by that. I mean, that's fair. I guess I just I don't in my head canon. I don't imagine she just kind of like similar to Krupp. She's just this like annoying character that just cackles all the time, you know, and like makes light situations. So, you know, like she's pretty harsh with her thoughts about people. And yeah, they're probably true, but it just, I didn't, I wouldn't say it's out of character at all. I mean, everybody, regardless of who the personality is, has the ability to be empathetic. But I just, I found it interesting that she chose to be empathetic here. And I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, you're seeing the Maybe physically giving up. You see her mentally giving up. And so yeah. even even Crone is like trying to I wouldn't say reason, but give her give her ideas as to like, hey, you know, you could potentially stop this, you know? Like you don't have to continue the way that you're going. There are ways to divert a river, right? We, I, and then it's a yes and no question. I mean, yeah, I mean, 
Sure, you can dam a river, but like this one, it's not going to do any good. And how long is that going to hold? Right. Yeah, not long. Right. Exactly. So I just, I thought that that was cool. Again, just I've, the Mibi is the one that I'm feeling. I just feel so bad for her. And I can't help but to think that these other characters feel the exact same on top of being uncertain about her daughter, on top of the escalating confrontation between like Rake and Brood and Callow or Whiskey Jack and just the uncertainty that these parties are carrying. Uh, yeah. It just the mix of emotions is just draining. Yeah, it, it was a lot. But I, I, I mean, I did enjoy this part just because, I, I mean, through through the book so far, I feel like we've seen the Maibi just try to be like the tough guy. You know, I mean, she's always got her guard up and now you, we kind of see it get put down. She's broken at this point. She's really broken at this point. Like this is, she, I mean, she's just done. Yeah, and, she always had this like aura of positivity. You know, like, I've accepted my fate, uh, everything will be fine. You know, there's a level of uncertainty as far as, like, her concerns with her daughter. But I feel like now that she recognizes that Silver Fox has allies, Silver, Silver, Silver Fox has a way of continuing on. And I think she's just accepted the reality, whereas before she was maybe just in denial about it. But it, I mean, it still seems like both because she wants to die, but then she's like, nope, fuck that. I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to defy them. I feel like her saying defying the gods means she's going to kill them because earlier she was. Kill the gods? No, kill her. This was like her way of being suicidal because she was just like, if the gods won't release me, then I will defy those gods. I don't know that I felt that way. I mean, it's, I definitely think, yeah, she's like ready to be done. Doesn't want to live anymore. But then she's like, you know what? Fuck you guys. I'm going to hang on here and keep going. But yeah, like a lot of me still just wants to be done with this shit. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's not an even split for me, but I don't know where the percentages lie. Fair enough. Well, and that kind of le leads into my, you know, one of my other thoughts here where Silver Fox said, she feels like Silver Fox has stolen her life. I mean, and that's, we've seen her, like, I felt like she's fought that feeling so far, you know, up until this point in the book. I would agree. And now we just, we just see her, she kind of buckles to that pressure, right? She caves into that frustration that she's got, which I, I don't think you can blame her because you like, I mean, you can fight whatever you want as long as you want but at some point you know when you're not making progress like it's gonna get to you and you're gonna you're gonna have a moment of weakness and it's how do you how do you not and she's just she's just really reached her breaking point i think mm -hmm. yep i would 100 percent agree um moving on from there it, it, you know she says what can she do about it you know she asked the crone if she would just have her daughter stop growing and and i just i you know you and i are both parents we both have you know young daughters preteen teen daughters and uh, you know i just that just kind of sums up i feel like the the struggle of parenthood right like you don't you know our kids they're not like sucking off our life force from us you know I mean, we might get stressed and stuff with them. And you're like, God, you just made me age 10 years because of this stupid thing you did or something like that. But, um, you know, we watch them grow up every day and, and every day we're getting older too. And I can't 
think of a single parent who probably, you know, every parent I'm sure is, you know, like, I don't, I don't want to see my kids get any older. I want them to stay right here. I just, this, I want to be in this moment with them and the, you know, that's just where I want to be, but that's just not how it works. Right. I mean, it's one of those things where like, you know, in the moment when, you know, kids are younger, I'm not saying that like most parents wish, wish for their, uh, their kids to grow up and, and get out of those stages but like when you're going through them you're you know you're stressed you're freaking out you like don't know what to do and and it's then, hard yeah and then when you you know now that they're they get to be eight nine ten eleven years old entering middle school last year of elementary school type of stuff you're like fuck that went fast yeah they they get independent they don't need you as much and you're like man you know i kind of just wish they needed me a little bit more right <laughs> it's it's hard to separate and then you miss those moments that you were frustrated about when you were younger or when they were younger. yeah you know like i miss all the time i wish that i could just go back and rock them to sleep when they were six nine months 12 months just sit there tired as fuck ready to get the fuck to sleep because i gotta wake up in six hours like <laughs> or less or less right so you just uh, i mean we just do the best we can with the time we got right exactly um the other thing the i know that that was your last point and here's mine is corlot is like the suicide hotline right now and well, <laughs> good point good point her from killing herself and to the point where the Mivy is just like, fine, you're not going to fucking let me do what I want. The hood, the gods won't release me from, you know, hoods release or whatever. So I fucking hate you. I hate you. Such a raw turning of emotions from beginning of the section to the end of the section. She hates everybody now. Like, fuck you all. You're not going to let me do what I want to do. I've been nice to you this whole time. I've had this air of positivity and now just fuck off. I hate you. It's just powerful. Yeah. She seems really back and forth. And, and I, you know, your, your point here, I don't think, you know, where the might be is thinking that she would defy them. I don't think that it, she's thinking she's going to kill herself. I think she's going to will herself on to spite them as long as she can. Obviously, like, I don't expect her to make it much longer, but. No, I don't. I don't. Th she's not. I don't get the sense that she's going to end it on her own. Yeah. I mean, I'll respectfully disagree with you on that one. I think that what she means by defying the gods is that if the gods will not release her from their embrace, then she'll do it herself. It's interesting that we just have completely opposite thoughts on that. Yep. It's all good. That's that's the point. <laughs> it it. It's still, and I know I've said it before, but it's still weird how, like, we read the same words and just come to different conclusions. Mm -hmm. For sure. But 100%. It's totally okay. Yeah. And this isn't, like, a thing, like, oh, you know, if she, <laughs> you know, like, I, I wouldn't expect, you know, if she does kill herself, you're going to be like, ha, look at Derek, you dumbass, I was right. You know, like, it's not going to be that type of situation. Right, right? yeah, I, I feel like on both of our perspectives, some sensitivity here is probably the best yes well um i didn't have anything else for that powerful section i feel like we did that section justice i don't know if we would have if we would have kept moving on tuesday night so i'm glad that we're we're near the end here definitely 
Yeah, I'm I'm ready to to move on here to your penultimate section here. Yeah. Burn is dying. Brood and Rake stood alone in the tent. Tension still swirled around them. It sounded from out in the clearing that Quick Ben was able to get the table down. Rake set his gauntlets down and said, Barring the one thing you must not do, can you do anything else? Brood shook his head and said old choices. And only one choice remains. He is Tenez, the goddess's own warren, and what assails her assailed him. He could shatter the one that has infected her. Rake stated the crippled god, and he spent an eternity nurturing his spite. We agreed, you, me, and the Queen of Dreams. Brood shook himself and said that it had been almost 1,200 years of this burden. Rake asked, what if Burn dies? Brood said that he didn't know, but it's likely her warren would die with her. It would become the crippled god's pathway to all other warrens, and then they all die. Rake added, and with that, all sorcery. The warlord sighed and asked Rake if that really would be such a bad thing. Rake snorted at this and said that with either choice Brood made, the crippled god would win. Rake added that having made this choice, he would gift this world and its people with a few more generations of living. Brood took the negativity approach and said that these people would live and die, go to war, and unleash slaughter. Rake stepped closer and said that Brood's thoughts were not worthy to track. He said to Brood that the warlord has done and continues to do all that could be asked of him, but it seems that all of them are ever drawn away by their own interests, thus leaving Brood abandoned. Brood tells Rake to stop this talk, as there were better things to talk about while they had this rare opportunity to chat. Rake said true enough, and then asked if when they were back out there, given that Tenens was infected, was Brood's challenge a bluff? Brood said, somewhat, but not really. The question is not my ability to release power, but the nature of my power. Rake said that this was concerning, and asked if Kalor knew. Brood said that he didn't. They banter a bit more before moving conversation to the Panion Domen. Rake said that they were a true mystery indeed, way more insidious than originally thought. Layers of power, one hidden beneath another. The Warren of Chaos lives at its heart, and the Great Ravens agree. Brood says that this strides too close a path to the crippled god for it to be accidental. The Chained One's poison is that of Chaos. Rake said that this was curious and there was no question of who was using whom. Rake added, Rake added that dealing with the Domen would present them with a formidable challenge. Brood quoted Silver Fox when she said that they would need help. Rake frowned and asked Brood to elaborate. The warlord told Rake that the Talanimas, the army of the undead, are coming. Rake asked if this was Dujek's contribution. The warlord said no, that this was Silver Fox as she is a flesh-and-blood bone caster, the very first in a very, 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 very long time. Rake asked Brood to tell him of her. Brood did at length, and when he was done, there was silence in the tent. So the first thing that I have here is their conversation about the crippled god's pathway to all other warrens. So... Essentially, what I'm gathering is that uh, the crippled god, the war that Paran has gotten himself into, 
is that if the crippled god is able to kill burn he's able to essentially take her house or take her warren and then use that warren to essentially get to other warrants so right now he's trapped but if burn dies he's no longer trapped and rake adds that if that were to happen then that means sorcery would end as well and i was like damn no more magic this is kind of a really big deal and it's a really big consequence of the crippled god if that would be to be like unfolded that would be huge right and it kind of goes back to tying into you know talk's perspective and why he's so adamant about not liking sorcery is because there are ways to do it naturally but don't you think it's like weird that if the crippled god is chained to burn how can they just not take him out because he's a disease he's an affection you know it's like the uh the cordyceps in the last of us once the host dies like they just take over yeah but if you kill the crippled god then why can't burn just heal herself over time i think there's no more new infection going in that's a great question i don't think that they ever talk about that but i think that this is their argument from the past i think that this is a repetition of a conversation that they've kind of already had and i feel like this is the reason why brood left left the queen of dreams and rake and then osiric came in to take his place i think that rake had something to do with chaining the, the crippled god this was also a reason why him and Lady Envy argued, kind of like what we talked about in the first section. All right. Well, I'm just throwing out my thoughts here. That's all. No, no, no. That's fair. No, I appreciate <laughs> it. I appreciate it. But you remember how we were talking about the two different wars, the Crippled God and then the Panion Domen? Like, you would agree that those things exist, right? You would, you would say yeah, the, the Warren. They're two different. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead, war, go ahead. The war that Paran has found himself in, this unknown war that he doesn't know anything about, you would you would agree that it would it's the the war against the crippled god. Then that's why he's kind of become the master of the deck. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like the the Panion and the crippled god are kind of tied together somehow. I think they are. I think you. I I hundred percent agree. But before, I mean, because we've been told that you know all these wars are really just one war right so i i think you know as one goes so the other does before i get to that i just had a thought so you remember okay. in the second chapter when munig had created these like these cards that had flaws in them yep you see how paran becoming the master of the deck is a reaction to that because if there's Not if there's false cards at play, eventually I would imagine that Paran being the master of the deck can manipulate them to not be in play. He could shuffle those cards once he figures them out. Hmm. It's like playing with the Joker card, right? Like, oh, this doesn't belong here. We'll just put you away. Right, exactly. Or those stupid like information cards that come in a deck. You know, <laughs> like who made them? And then like, Somehow they slip into a game and you're like, this doesn't fucking belong here. Get the fuck out. So, <laughs> but yeah. So I, going back to your, your point of the Panion Domain and the Crippled God being related, 
you know, when Rake and Brood are talking about the mystery surrounding the Panion Domen, they say that it's layers of power, one hidden beneath the uh, another, and the Warren of Chaos lives at its heart, and the Great Ravens agree. So is it possible that these the power that the Panion priests or the Panion Domain is using is the Warren of Chaos? Uh, I don't think I've got anything to refute that. Okay, so I mean, you would agree that that's probably what's linking the Panion Domain and the Crippled God. I mean, I, sure. Do you think, well, I mean, they talk about a question of who is using whom. I mean, to me, it sounds like the Crippled God is using the Panion Domain to in spread spread the infection just on a human. I'd agree with I'd agree with that. Also, you ready for a really fucking big twist that yes. might blow no. your mind yes. when I say this? Okay, lay it on me. So do you think that it's possible that Hairlock was working for the Panion domain because he was running around in the Warren of Chaos? And you could tell that he was, you know, more or less changed. Not into a wooden puppet but more or less his personality was really dark you know so i'm curious if he had motivations that coincided with the goals of the panion doman and the panion seer i don't know but it's crazy to think I... about right like we don't think of hairlock right he's just no said to be reincarnated into a, a soul shifted puppet and then he fucking dies, right? The hounds desop, like devour him. They splinter him completely. He's gone. I mean, I don't think he's fucking coming back, but what was he doing in the Warren of Chaos all this time? Was he really, you know, chasing down and, and you know, bleeding, doing Quick Ben's work? Yeah, probably. But what else was he doing when he wasn't doing what Quick Ben needed him to do? I don't know. It's a good question. Or is it possible that the Panion Domain worships the crippled god. And that's how he's able to get, or that's how he was able to rise to power in this foreign land. I mean, that could be too. I, that's a good thought too. Because, I mean, I mean, we've been told they are, it is a religious deal. Yep. That's a good thought. Yep. So, I, I really, I like the section because I feel like it tied a lot of things in that were, was previously stated in other sections in this chapter. But I also just, again, I like the interaction between Brood and Rake. You know, it, it going back to what we talked about, it seems like it's one of those things that they're just, they're tolerating each other because of a decision that they are linked to that we don't really know the exact specifics of. So that's my stance. Um, it's all just so interesting to me. And I'm just, I'm craving, I'm craving more of this stuff. I feel like as long as this chapter was, I feel like this is kind of what most people or if readers kind of feel the way that you do, Derek, about it maybe being a little slow at first. I think that this is the chapter that kind of like hooks them back in. I Well, I have no doubts. I mean, it's going to, I mean, this book's going to just, it's going to fucking blow up. It's going to wreck us. I have a feeling. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know how soon it's going to happen, but I don't think it's going to take that long. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, sir, uh, you're on your last section. What do you say? Holy fuck. We did it. We're there. <laughs> We're so close. There's two more oh, left. Jesus. All right. Uh, are you ready there, sir? I am ready, Freddy. Ready, Freddy. All right. 
Whiskey Jack studied Paran and strode over to him. Paran was trembling as if he had a fever, his face pale and sweaty. Quick Ben had managed to get the table to the ground, though it still did not want to fade. Quick Ben had crouched near it, and Whiskey Jack knew he was probing it, trying to learn anything he could. You are a fool. Turning to face the speaker, Whiskey Jack said, Nonetheless, Calor. Calor responded, saying he would come to regret the vow to protect the child. Whiskey Jack didn't give him the time of day, shrugging his shoulders and walked away. Calor said he was not done with him yet. Calmly, Whiskey Jack said he was done with him. Paran faced him with wide eyes. Behind him, the Tice Dandy dispersed. Nor did he see Coralette or the Mybe. Silver Fox was a few paces away, looking at Paran with Tattersail's eye. Paran told Whiskey Jack he didn't want any questions. He didn't have any answers for him. Not for what has happened here or what he has become. Paran said it might be best to have someone else in charge of the bridge burners. Whiskey Jack said there was no reason for that. And besides, he hated changing his mind on things. Quick Ben joined them and said that was a close call. And Whiskey Jack asked what that thing was. Quick Ben said it was exactly what it looked like. A new unaligned card in the deck of dragons. Except it's the unaligned of all unaligned as the table holds a whole deck. He continued on saying Paran was on the verge of ascending, as they had suspected. So what he decided to do, or not to do, could have major ramifications on everyone. The deck seemed to have acquired a master, Jen Isand Rule. Paran turned away, not wanting to be a part of the conversation. Whiskey Jack said he thought the name referred to his escapades in a certain weapon. Quick Ben said that was correct, but since that's also the name on the card, it seems they are linked somehow. Pran really doesn't have any idea what the link could mean. He'll have to think hard on it, but perhaps he already knows and could help him out, provided that he is willing. Pran was going to speak, but Whiskey, Whiskey Jack spoke first, saying the captain didn't have any answers and that he assumed they were carrying that ridiculous table on the march now. Quickben said that would be best, at least for a little while. They should get rid of it before getting into Panian territory. They could have the Trigali Trade Guild deliver it to an alchemist in Darugistan. A new voice spoke, saying the new card would not leave them. It was Silver Fox. Behind her, a dozen Rivi warriors were lifting the table. Quickben said it was risky taking such a powerful object into battle. Silver Fox said it was a risk they must take. Whiskey Jack asked why, and she said it was because it belonged to Pran and he would have need of it. He asked her to explain. She said they struggle against more than one enemy, as shall be seen. Pran interjected, saying he didn't want the card. They'd better paint a new face on that fucking thing. He has the blood of the hound of a shadow within him, making him a liability. When would they all see the truth? They heard the rumble of armor. It was Caller. Whiskey Jack told him he was not a part of this conversation. Caller retorted that he was never a part, but often the subject. Again, Whiskey Jack cut him off, saying, Not this time, buckaroo. Caller's eyes fixed on Quick Ben, saying, He's a hoarder of souls, while he himself was a man who released souls. Should he break the chains within him? It would be an easy thing to do to leave him helpless. Quick Ben said it would be even easier to make a hole in the ground. Keller disappeared. 
armor clattering, followed by a bellow of rage. Silver Fox's eyes grew wide at Quick Ben. He said he didn't give a shit who Caller was. Whiskey Jack looked down at the pit, and Caller was climbing out. Not too shabby for an old man. Quick Ben said he wasn't stupid, so he would leave now. He made a hand gesture and disappeared. Caller's hands were now visible as he tried to pull himself out of the hole. Whiskey Jack told Paran to get back to the bridge burners. If things went to plan, they would meet again at Capistan. Paran took his leave. Silver Fox eyed Caller and said it might, might be best if they left also. Woot, you're done. How's it feel? No more summer. Pretty, Eric. pretty fucking good, dude. That was... <laughs> this was a monster. Um, I didn't have a ton on this. My first thought, you know, like where the link with Paran and the card and all that deal. I, I don't know if Paran really knows. I think if he did, he'd probably share it. But I guess if it's been revealed to us, I definitely didn't catch it. I mean, it. I mean, he knows what he is. I mean, based on his transportation into the the Finnist house, I think that at this point he's just so exhausted he just doesn't want to talk about it anymore. I, I mean, he's actively trying to deny it, so I don't know if he's just like trying to wish it away. But I mean, yeah, I get it. Like. like he knows to some extent, but I don't know if he really be- like believes in himself yet. I don't think he understands it yet. That's fair. I think that he's still in denial about it. I think that what I think that he believes that it's true. I just I think he's got this notion of like, why is this happening to me? R- right, and it's it's kind of the like the Gandalf thing from Lord of the Rings. Frodo says he doesn't want the ring, and Gandalf says, you know, like, well, nobody wants responsibility, but. You know, it comes to those who can handle, or however he's, I can't fucking Right, yeah. You. No, I, I 100% agree with you. I think that he does know. I think that he's just, he's in a state of denial. And this is kind of where, like, you know, we go back to the countless conversations that Whiskey Jack has with Quick Ben and um, Hedge, right? Is he the other? He's the healer, right? Mallet. Mallet's the healer. I always get Mallet and Hedge mixed up. I think it's Matt. I think you're right. I think it's Matt. I think you're right. Um, about how they have to keep pushing Paran into the, pushing him in the back into the right corridor. So I think that what this section is telling us, the readers, is that based on what Silver Fox is saying, Paran, whether he likes it or not, is, is going to get shoved into the direction of responsibility. He's just going to have to deal with it. Yep, exactly. He doesn't really have any other choice. Mm-hmm. Whether he understands or wants to understand or if he wants to stay ignorant, like, it's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. Right. Uh, My other thought on this section, dude, I don't know about you, but I loved when Quick Ben just (laughs) made a hole appear in the ground and Calor just, like, the stupid coyote or roadrunner and, you know, (laughs) the cartoons falling off the cliff. Like, that's what I imagined. Just gone. And then he starts climbing out, and Quick Ben's like, "Ah, well, I better go." That was awesome. Yeah, I I actively chuckled when I read that. I wasn't expecting a, so. Like when no, I no, like, not at all. <laughs> stupid bitch. Yeah, just some comedic relief needed. That was that was great. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think about uh, the Rivy, the Rivy carrying this table? I mean, I I agree with her. Like he's gonna need it. But, like, what a burden. I mean, isn't this table supposed to be, like, 200 pounds or something like that? Yeah. 
I mean, I feel like you and I could carry a 200 pound table. Would we do it very fast? No, but we could do it. We so, like, you got five minutes. You got 12 people carrying it. Like, they should be fine. Yeah. But I mean, also, like, just thinking about how awkwardly shaped <clears throat> that table would be and carrying it with 12 people, how much coordination you're going to need to have to move that fucking thing. Yeah. It's baby steps. That's all you're doing is baby steps. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I just, Caller and his persistence, man, it just pisses me off. <laughs> he is nothing if not persistent. Yep. Yes, he is. So, yeah, I, I, I again, I feel like this section is just kind of winding down the chapter. It's kind of like touching on information that we already have while further explaining things, you know. The way Quick Ben says the unaligned of all unaligned cards, like that makes sense to me. That, you know, represents a master of the deck. And then he yeah. explains the whole table thing that I brought up. You know, the cards are already like a whole deck of cards are already like encased in the table. So Paran being painted underneath is a visual representation of him being the master of the deck. So, yeah. But I'm ready to finish this off, man. Uh, we got one section left. And it's definitely a uh, conclusion to this chapter. We played a whole fucking nine-inning game here, buddy. So uh, we've earned this. Mm-hmm. Well, you ready? Bring it home. Ready to bring it home? I'm ready for you. Whiskey Jack sat in his saddle, watching the columns of One Arms Host marching out from the city of Pale. Quarrel-mounted Black Morant circled above the two armies on the move. Fewer in numbers than usual, but that was because Twist had left with Captain Paran and the bridge burners four days ago. And eight of the 11 flights had just this past night on their way to the Vision Mountains on the northwest border of the Domen. The commander was exhausted and the ache in his leg was robbing him of sleep. He was restless to begin his journey halfway across an entire continent. Quick Ben sat nervously beside the commander. Whiskey Jack said that the mage's mount has picked up on Quick Ben's nervousness. The mage agreed. Whiskey Jack said that he assumes it's because the mage is wondering when he'll he'll be cut loose to catch up with Paran and the bridge burners and put some distance between Caller and potentially even Silver Fox. Quick Ben sighed at this last statement and admitted that he hasn't hid his unease for the child very well. Quick explains that the child has grown five years since they arrived. Corlat and the Shoulder Women are doing what they can for the Mybe, but Silver Fox has nearly taken all of the Mybe's life force. The thought of the converging Talani mass also made him nervous. And on top of all that, Rake still wanted to know all about the mage. Whiskey Jack asked if Rake had done any further probing. Quick replied that he hadn't, but why continue to tempt him? The commander explained that he needed the mage just a little while longer, and they'll keep their distance from Rake. He switched gears to ask the mage if the mercenaries in Capistan have taken the bait yet. Quick Ben said they were playing with it. Whiskey Jack said that they'd given them another week, and if nothing, then he would send the mage off. Quick Ben agreed, and Whiskey Jack then asked Quick Ben what was really going on. Quick Ben blinked innocently. Whiskey Jack went on to explain that the mage had visited every seer in Pale and had spent a small fortune on readings of the Deck of Dragons. He had also had a report of the mage sacrificing a goat on top of a barrow. 
Quickman admits that the goat thing was an act of desperation. Whiskey Jack took the opportunity to ask what the spirits in the barrow told him. Quickman explains that there weren't any spirits and that it was as if it was just cleaned out. Whiskey Jack exclaimed, cleaned out? Quickman explains that someone or something gathered them, up, gathered them up and that he's never known that to happen before. Whiskey Jack wasn't fooled and said that he was on to the mage and to quit changing the subject. Quick Ben scowled and admitted that he was doing some investigating, but on nothing he couldn't handle. He said that now that they were officially on the march, there really wasn't much he could do about it. He tells Whiskey Jack that he's been sidetracked with these ruby spirits disappearing, and it's got him curious. Whiskey Jack told him that when he figures it out to let him know. Quick Ben said that he would. Whiskey Jack gritted his teeth and thought to himself that he'd known the mage too long and that he'd stumbled upon something and it's got the mage's tail between his legs. On the road to Pale, One-Arm's host moved to join the ranks of Brood's vast army. The march had begun, onward to war, against an enemy they had never seen and of who they knew nothing about. Uh, Damn, dude, we did it. We that did was it. A, that was a motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the, the first thing that I have here was the cap you stand taking the bait yet i know that we got a mention of that in an earlier section but what exactly is the details about this i feel like it's like the moranth well i feel like there's mercenaries in capustan that quick ben has been talking to but talking to them about what like joining forces like being the inside man is kind of like what comes to my mind well they gotta have some sort of plan i guess i don't know because I know, I mean, they talked about, like, you know, if they were to fly soldiers in or whatever, they'd have to bring their own food and shit. Right. Um, so I don't know if it's referring to that or something. I guess I'm not 100% sure. Gotcha. I'm, I'm sure that we'll get more information on that, but um, I'm just kind of curious as to, like, what the plan actually is, like, the specifics of it. Um, the other thing is Whiskey Jack is kind of, he's on to Quick Ben. And I can imagine that Quick Ben at this point is panicking as he thinks Whiskey Jack is aware of Burn or what he knows. So do you think do you think he doesn't quite trust him all the way? I think that he knows that something's up. As he says, you know, something's got the mage's tail between his legs, as he said. So you think he's just like afraid to tell him of this other thing that's going on amidst this other war? Yeah, I think so. Kind of going yeah, back sense. to like the third section in this chapter where, you know, Whiskey Jack is like, I'm not happy. And then Quick Ben has that thought about, well, shit, if he's unhappy now, I probably shouldn't <laughs> say anything about Burn, you know. Good point. So That's fair. The other thing that um, the, the, the last thing that I have here is the Rivy Spirits just non-existing in the barrow, in the barrow. And I don't know if I think if this is true. With the whole Rivy spirits being snatched up, um, I kind of think that Quick is just pulling Whiskey Jack's leg, no pun intended, to avoid the conversation about Burn. But at the same time, I guess it's possible the Rivy spirits have been taken. And if they are, I'd imagine that Silver Fox is responsible, as in one of the previous chapters, she said that she would take care of them or like something along those lines. I guess I just kind of took it at face value that they were gone. Maybe I'm just too trusting in that type of thing. Um, I don't know. Hmm. 
What do you? I, I chuckled at Whiskey Jack's reaction to him hearing reports of Quick Ben sacrificing a goat. <laughs> that was that was funny to me. I chuckled. Yeah, but he's clearly willing to do about anything. Mm-hmm. He is definitely doing his research. Trying. Definitely trying. If you're not trying, you're dying. I mean, that's pretty true. <laughs> if you're not trying, you're dying. Yeah. Put that on. Put that on a T-shirt, Justin. I think it already is. Oh, well, do it again. Yeah, dude, it feels so good to be done with this sec- this chapter. Uh, what a ride! Just the amount of information, the amount of conversation and insights, the amount of anxiety, the amount of worry, the amount of like unknown. <laughs> it's just littered throughout this chapter, and you're just like, holy fuck! So yeah. Um, how long we've we been going here? Uh, didn't we start when, let me, let me, let me, let me look. Uh, I sent you the link. I sent the link at 735. Okay. So we'll just call it. So we, on this chapter spent six and a quarter hours on this chapter. Now really, it'll probably be a little less night. Cause yeah, you sent it at 635. We bullshitted for a couple minutes. 735. 734, whatever. So it's been another fucking three hours. Yep. Um, this is going to be a fucking five plus hour episode. <laughs> I would imagine it's probably, I, I would feel like in an episode like this, I'll probably trim off about 40 minutes worth of dead air and potty breaks. So it's going to be five and a half hours, five and a half hours. This episode's going to be, I and don't we're doing know. it for everybody out there. Yes. This is all for you guys. All for I you. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, hope you like it. Please do use that pause button to your advantage. Like, holy shit! I I will say it has not felt like that long. Obviously, yeah, we had a long recording session on Tuesday, and then we had another long one today. But I mean, between the two of them, they went pretty fast. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I mean, uh, clearly the first half was longer than the second half, and we had twelve sections to cover in this half. So yeah, woofta, 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 woofta. Holy shit. Yeah. So now, I mean, that was, my God. Yeah. I. We might, I mean, if we get another long chapter, we might have to, we might just have to break it up into multiple episodes or something. Uh, I don't know. I don't we'll know. play it by ear, but. I don't know if I'll ever do that. But yeah, it, I don't know. It feels nice. I feel proud. I feel proud of a five and a half hour episode. Like, like that is fucking legit. That's fucking dedication. If you ever told me. Uh, that is, you know what? I might, I might send Mr. Erickson a message tomorrow and told, then tell him like, we spent over six hours on one chapter, chapter, five. and just to see if he says anything. Do it. I'll do that, do and I'll let, obviously I'll let you know if he says anything back. But yeah, uh, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to moving on. Uh, we're going to be kind of in a mad dash here because it is, as of now, it's. Damn near 11 o'clock, October 26th. We just finished chapter five. We need to get through chapter six. Check sixth. Blah. Chapter six. And then uh, a week. So, I mean, basically in eight days, we're going to record with DLC Book Club on November 4th. Yep. Uh, on this whole sub book. So, I mean, we got to. Yeah, I know you've already. We've, we've, yeah, it's going to be a sprint here. Well, and we have to come up with questions for that. Which I think we'll be able to do. I'm not terribly worried about that. I mean, we'll be fine. 
And I think the advantage we have is we'll be able to talk about not only just this sub book, but the previous two books as a whole. So I, I mean, I, I think we'll be able to come up with things fine. Yeah. And you know, maybe I definitely think we should ask questions about the holds and the Warrens and the Azath and just see if they can maybe help either can like confirm what we know about it at this point or tell us we're dead fucking wrong. Right. Yeah. I'm not, they must, I mean, they're obviously further along than we are. I don't know how close to the end of the book they are, but I would imagine they're probably at the end or close to it. Yeah. Are you going to make a Twitter post about uh, how long we recorded? I don't know why I wouldn't. That's a good point. I will definitely do that. Yeah. Um, it is impressive. It so is. it's fun. It's kind of fun breaking a record like that. So, uh, I mean, it's our, man. but it very well could be a record. You it's know? just one chapter. So it's one yeah, chapter. That, that has to be a record somewhere. Like longest podcast about a book on one chapter. Like D and Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Memories <laughs> of life. Something up to five. I will be really curious to see where it ends up once you edit it. Um, by that time, I'll probably be in North Carolina or Florida. But um, yeah, I would imagine. I guess probably be on your way back by the time it goes live. Yeah, we'll see. I know. Uh, I mean, we've got some episodes banked up, but we might have a a little bit of a break in recording here after November 4th, just with my schedule and, and the holidays and everything. But we will, I'm sure we'll do our best to, you know, keep up with content, whether it's curse of the fallen or this book, we're not stopping, but it's hopefully, you know, people understand it's the holidays. I mean, we take a lot, of, we take a lot of time to do this. Uh, I mean, it took us six plus hours to record just this episode, that's not including the time it took to type up our summaries, which I would guess I probably put another probably three or four hours into on just my part. So, uh, it, I mean, give us a little bit of grace here if there's a little bit of a gap in things. Um, we're doing our best, but, I mean, we still have lives outside. We have work. We have family, kids. We're, we're busy on top of that. For sure, dude. Oh, boy. All right. Well, um, I suppose we shouldn't make this longest episode ever even longer. So what do you say? Should we wrap her up? I think we, yeah, we probably should. I'm going to go to bed here. I got to be up early for work. So. All right, man. Well, man, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I hope this isn't <laughs> a record we break anytime too soon. So Never know. Never know. Maybe Chapter 7 is the 150. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to yeet my book across the room if that's the case. <laughs> I mean, I'd rather just get it out of the way, like, instead of waiting and being anxious to when that actually is coming about us, but... At the same time, yeah, I'm sure it'd be really fucking good if it was, but, like, like God damn it, we just did a six-hour episode, like, I'm not ready for something that's gonna be, like, twice that long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, fuck it, 12-hour episode. That I'm... Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't do that in two goes we would definitely break up the recording for sure. But um, as far as releasing it, I don't know. I just, I'm not a fan of the whole part one, part two shit. You know, I'm pretty open to whatever, however you decide you want to do it. I mean, obviously it's, it'll probably depend on, you know, the chapter, how things flow and everything. So, I mean, if we find a spot where it makes sense to go that route, maybe we do that, but otherwise we'll just roll with it. Yeah, that's true. All right, sir. Uh, I bid you good do. 
uh, I bid you adieu. Uh, <laughs> I'm the one who's been drinking, Justin. I'm tired, man. I'm tired. Yeah, I'll uh, see you in the morrow. Well, I'll talk to you tomorrow sometime. And uh, yeah, just enjoy the rest of your night, dude. You too. Well, hey, thanks again for a, a fun, fun-filled episode here. Uh, I'll be excited to listen to it over multiple drives to work and at work <laughs> and everything else in between. Fuck yeah, man. <laughs> All right, we'll talk soon. All right, later, dude. See ya. Bye. Bye.